G'day listeners, this episode is proudly brought to you by our major sponsor, subshq.com.au. Use code BENS15 at checkout to receive 15% off on your next purchase. G'day ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Matter Mentality podcast where we talk all things science, psychology, performance, nutrition, physiology to help you optimize and be at your best. Now this episode we are joined by a very special I would say unique guest that probably would be a little bit left field of what you might expect on this channel. But given my realms of study, education, interests, uh, uh, fixations, obsessions, the the once we get into this conversation, you will probably understand a bit more as to why he's here because it definitely fits a certain part of the bill. But we are joined by George at Tin Man. That's me. Um, Hi. We'll go with that. Hi. <laughs> How are you, mate? I am good, thank you. Very different time for me than it is for you. So, but we're both drinking coffee, it seems. So. Yeah. So seven seven p.m. for me. I've still got a lot of work to do, and it's eight a.m. for you. Oh. Yeah. Uh, nine. 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 Thank, thank okay. goodness. A little bit. A little bit later in the morning. In the morning for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess. I guess to get started. So for those who don't know, um, Tin Man is a very, uh, oh, confrontational awareness uh, uh educational men's health page i guess you could kind of describe it as on instagram but it is definitely uh taken on kind of like a, i guess you say a life of its own um in terms of you know where we turn for that research or that education that information some support uh the, the comments and stuff i've read on your page is literally just people coming for for you know just in, just to be there and say good day or read this read the stuff and say how it's helped um but yeah, I guess if you could give us a bit of a, you know, what is Tin Man? What is the page? What are we trying to achieve there? Because there's a lot to unravel there. Um, I mean, it's a lot of different things. I guess for me, it's it's about filling in a lot of the gaps in what I saw in the conversation around uh, gender equality, mm-hmm. um, focusing on men and boys um, all around the world. Uh, but I suppose for me, the common the common denominator is is mental health. Mm-hmm. A lot, I know a lot, a lot, there's a lot of advocacy around mental health and how that ties into physical health. Uh, but I've always found advocacy to be useful, but also limited. Like yep. I know, I know when we talk about men's, men's mental health and male suicide, um, we, we, we normally get the same slogans around encouraging men to cry or boys mm-hmm. to talk, or, which is a very, very worthwhile thing and something that I support too. But I, I try to explore the reasons why men may not be able to cry or, or may right. not be able to talk and look at the structural issues that are causing their distress uh and a lot of a lot of that is around um you know difficulty in childhood or education uh-huh. or fatherlessness or domestic violence and uh I, I try to widen the scope of mental health to look at what is causing the problem itself i always find that crying is good and and uh and a worthy thing but it, it's more of a means of dealing with the problem rather than a solution to the problem itself. Mm-hmm. The, pro- the problem is what is causing that distress. Yes. And uh, th- there's a myriad of unspoken about issues that I want to talk about. And I try to do so in a way difficult. I mean, uh, we can get, I mean, if you're interested in the creative strategy behind it all, but trying to find out the best way of having those conversations that are on one side, uh, in- inclusive and welcoming and friendly, but at the same time, unapologetic and to use your word, confrontational. Uh, how do we bring those two sides together, uh-huh. and how do we uh, how do we have that conversation on Instagram in ten slides? <laughs> it's, it's a challenge, but um, 
the good thing is that so few people are talking about these things that it leaves me with a huge wealth of things I can talk about and write about that no one's no one's covering because they are somehow for some reason controversial so it's good for me because it means that it's like it's like the forbidden fruit. No one wants to eat it, but I'm there gobbling it all down. And, uh, <laughs> this is all for me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, delicious. And it's just a <laughs> day of reckoning, no doubt. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's good for me. I mean, it's like, um, it's, 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 people think I'm some sort of expert. And I suppose, comparatively speaking, I am. But it's sad that just some random guy on Instagram who's a Bachelor of Arts and mm-hmm. a filmmaker can mm-hmm. somehow become an expert in these issues. I mean, it sh- I always say it shouldn't be me doing yes. this, but but it is. It should be our politicians. It should be our doctors and our researchers, our educators, policymakers, healthcare professionals. Um, not me, but but I'm the best you've got for now. So good to I meet mean, you. <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's a a what's the word uh, the the value to it and the the. Uh, honor i guess that comes from it somewhat like there is a degree of appreciation that men i'm sure express to you personally and mm. probably try and get across because it is so mm. so necessary and so it is something like you said it's something that's lacking it's something that isn't there that we yeah. can't really turn to and that's kind of why i think this chat's so important is that we're, we're going to explore a few things across like you said you know the way mm. that psychological health mental health associate to physical health and the data is quite clear uh, quite clear you know when we look at exercise psychology uh the amount of men yeah. with muscle dysmorphia and body image issues is actually yeah. higher than females but mm. it's a very uh almost taboo topic to mention like oh, there's no way yeah. have these problems but why do you think there are ten thousand guys in the gym trying to look like arnie it's not all because they want to look like arnie they're not all competitive in nature it's just <laughs> that is a thing that exists and like you said you know for that for that alone to exist is is you know for you to exist for that you know reasons like that let alone the myriad of other reasons um is definitely important, but I, I get like the, 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 the big thing for me is how you go with, well, the big thing for me, one of the big things for me, cause there's gonna be a lot of big things. One of the big things for me is how you go with the, the challenge of conversation. Like the fact that the fact that we're purely going to refer to you as George, because there is some privacy issues we wish to keep in order to allow you to sustain a tin man, but be your life outside of it, because there are, you know, mm. challenges, threats, direct attacks, you know, the virtue woke signaling that may come across from it. <laughs> There's a lot to it that just simply ha- like trying to keep privacy is almost necessary for your livelihood. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I guess I should uh, preface this by saying I've, I've not got bricks sailing through my living room window or no one's leaving like bags of a uh, dog shit on my <laughs> doorstep. But, um, <laughs> But there are, there have been. Obviously, there is pushback to this. I mean, it's not just me. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this as a consequence of um, the experience of people before me. I mean, I, I have a podcast as well. My first guest was someone called Erin Pitsy, and Erin Pitsy was the the woman who 50 years ago opened the first refuge in the world yes. for abused women, only a few miles away from my house. Wow! So she saw before that domestic violence was seen as a behind closed doors, a private family matter. And yep. she was like, no, this is this is a serious epidemic of violence against women. We need to get these women out of these houses. And there's nowhere for them to go. So Erin started basically squatting in abandoned houses all over London and bringing the women in and the children in. And she became the biggest squatter in the country. She took over whole streets and hotels and took in, saved the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of women. This is 50 years ago, the first ever refuge in the world. Uh, and then one of the things she found very early on is that a lot of the women that were coming to her were also violent themselves yes. so 
she discovered what was essentially a cycle of violence where women and men were living in violent relationships of reciprocal violence and they were both contributing and the solution was getting them both out of the house so um she's she immediately saw domestic violence as a not a gendered issue and she wanted to open a refuge for men too and as soon as she started to say things along those lines despite being based on her personal experience uh she she got she was um subjected to ser serious harassment uh threats she had like bomb squads going through her mail she had the police escort around the country and eventually she did actually leave the country uh and had to and was usurped from her charity and uh that's only one of many stories uh similar stories that are sadly where if, if you seem to talk about men especially in subjects of areas of in areas of like domestic violence and sexual abuse if you try to talk about men often you you will receive pushback from a very small but loud yes. minority of idiots and uh I tried I, I I tried to make the fundamental principle of me and my page about nothing I say excludes women. Yes. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to overwrite men on top of women. I'm yes. trying to expand the conversation at a, at a second side to the story because often often these issues are causal of each other. Uh, domestic violence being a great example is that you can't solve violence against women unless you also solve violence against men. Mm -hmm. So by solving violence against men, I am indirectly solving or helping solve violence against women. Um, that's what I mean. That's that's the thing I need to keep bringing myself back to. Like everything people believe and uh, feel about women, I also feel. I also my heart breaks for women too. But I'm adding to that conversation. I'm not. I'm mm -hmm. really not trying to take away from it. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah. But but point is, yeah. I I've never had. I've not had any. I've had a few stupid messages. I've had a few a few threats, and you know, they're all but it's just silly. I don't consider myself in danger. I've had a few people say, oh, the Tin Men, they get death threats and this and that. And I'm just like, just simmer down. Like, it's really not <laughs> that bad. I know I, I know people that have have had those situations, have, have literally had, you know, windows smashed and cars keyed and stuff like that. But I think I like to think that because I communicate in a way that's a bit more welcoming, mm -hmm. and a little less conflict orientated, I... I've not, as of yet, been on the receiving end of anything I would consider problematic threats. So I don't want people to start to worry about me. But it would also be silly of me not to protect a little bit of my personal identity. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't. I mean, I've never shared any of my content on my personal Instagram page, for example. I don't follow my. <laughs> I don't even follow my own page. Uh, so there's certain elements of this common sense that I do, but at the same time, I'm not. I'm not. You know, jumping for cover every day. I'm not oh, getting fights in a local park. So I mean, it's, well, even even if we look at like the the current, I guess, social climate that that there are these risks or you know potential backlash or kickback. Um, you know, I've I've been involved in in Facebook conversations where, and it got to a point where it became humorous for me, where I couldn't even bring up topics of conversation, either health related, psychology like psychology related, nutrition related, where the the person or the group perhaps that i was engaging with would hunt down my personal employer try and find my business yeah. to try and find a certain place that i engage in a work to refute me or deny me yeah you know and that's just me at my level of just simply stirring conversation for the fact that it needs to exist at the level where you've got tens of thousands of people listening on your every word let's say that you know, <laughs> for every thousand people with two degrees of separation there's a million people let's look at forty thousand yeah. people it doesn't mm. take much for someone there to be connected to say a very hardcore left-leaning person that is all about like no you've got to shut up 
that yeah. that degree of fear is still somewhat present that this could yeah. you know, turn back on my personal life and not so much physical violence, but there is, you know, the ramifications of potentially your personal life being affected by the fact that you just care. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was speaking about this yesterday with some friends of mine. Um, a lot, a lot of the information I present doesn't just go against uh, common common perceptions of different problems it often goes against someone's fundamental identity as a human being mm-hmm. uh, using domestic violence as a great example is a lot of people are based their fundamental identity politically speaking on domestic violence being a gendered issue mm-hmm. caused by patriarchal need for power and control and people mm-hmm. are like they've, they've built their life around it they've built their friendship groups around it some mm-hmm. people's job is dependent on it uh, they've got the t-shirt they've got the badge uh, every, every their family, the community, everything's built around that 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 remaining fundamentally true. And if I present data, huge amounts of data that mm-hmm. said actually ge- domestic violence isn't gendered. Yep. And it, and it isn't just down to the need for power and control. And when mm-hmm. it is, that that need is also shown by women just as much as men. That mm-hmm. isn't that doesn't just go against what they believe, but it also goes against goes against who they are. So it seems like a an existential threat to who they are and their fundamental identity. And a lot of people don't like that. And I understand, I totally understand that. If you've badged yourself for these beliefs for your mm-hmm. essentially your entire adult life, and then someone comes along and presents compelling data that shows that actually you're wrong or you're not completely right, mm-hmm. I can see that's a threat to them. I've always described it a bit like walking around all day with food stuck between your teeth. Where you've, yeah. you've been, it's embarrassing. Yes. And you can, you can, when someone points it out, it, you can react angrily. Yes. But the, what the, question is what do you do next do you keep walking around if it's stuck between your teeth or do you go to the mirror and you know sort it out so I, I do sympathize with people and I do I do understand I try to be sympathetic on all sides I try when I what my approach to male violence for example is rather than dealing with dealing with violent men as an end product try to see ask why did they become violent what has a man experienced in his life childhood especially yes uh bullying child mm-hmm. abuse i've been mm-hmm. looking i was reading yesterday about an amazing paper about uh corporal punishment against children spanking basically and how how spanking a child is directly linked to that child more often becoming violent later in life so i try to encourage people to explore the journey men and boys have been on to make them become who they are mm-hmm. and similarly when when i hear someone like a, a radical saying i hate men or kill all men or whatever I also try to apply that to them. I'm like, well, what what have they experienced? Like, what yeah. what journey have they been on? Have they they probably been through a series of very painful, traumatic experiences at the hands of men or boys? And I want to start from the same starting point of compassion by saying that whatever happened to you should never have happened, and I'm, yes. I'm sorry it did. But if there's any way you can give men a second chance, uh, I'd I'd love to talk to you. So trying to not see people as end products rather but rather the consequence of their their personal journey i think is another useful uh, philosophy that i i try to use I, I, that in and of itself is something that can that should be you know cross field cross realm like <clears throat> when we look at say like to make this more uh i guess direct to to listeners usually follow me from like say your uh, my training on nutritional content when we see these camps of people like when I, so I, I will often put out a lot of confrontation or a lot of like conflict or challenging or yeah. direct uh, yeah. education, physiology, psychology, education. Like I will generally challenge someone's idea. My, my biggest philosophy is always attack the idea, not the person, because I don't yeah. believe the person is wrong. I just believe they've been misguided and they themselves have got to a conclusion that they haven't been presented the full story or the understanding of the evidence. Now, 
the the issue with say you know your fitness or even sales marketing things like that in general is it's all about polarization it's all about entrenchment encampment and mm. maximize who you can bring into your camp to get you the yeah. most bang for your buck the most revenue the most generated interest the most engagement all that jazz mm. so when you go against that just simply want to present something with no agenda other than i just want mm. to correct what's wrong and put the people who are perhaps you know part of the reason that it's wrong and still being spread I'm a bit of blast. Like I'm putting you, I'm putting the the spotlight on you for what you're saying being wrong. I'm not saying that you're an idiot. I'm not saying that you're dangerous. I'm saying that things you're saying are dangerous. And the 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 issue I find in modern social engagement and debate is that it's becoming almost impossible for people to separate the artist from the art. And you you can't yeah. almost like I if I'm questioning your decision to like your opinion on a certain aspect of men's health, if I'm challenging you on a certain aspect mm. of nutritional belief that you know keto is the way to solve everything or low carb is the absolute answer or you know this diet is the absolute bees knees and we've got to all be paleo if i'm challenging you on your idea yeah. i'm not saying you as a person are a pos i'm not saying that you're an, an ass that you've got to be you know let's get rid of you i'm saying that you know you've got an idea you've absolutely entrenched your entire life around this uh, discussion point this topic this idea that you think is true i want to know how you got there and discuss these ideas because there's a chance as Jordan Peterson talks about, um, you know, let's, let's take on the idea that the person you're talking to may know something that you don't. And that gives you a chance yeah. to learn. If you can apply that to everyone. Okay. I'm opening this discussion for you to potentially teach me. Now, if you instantly go to attack me personally, or you're going to attack me in a defensive manner, I've already come to the conclusion that there's no point engaging this because you're either, you don't know what you're <laughs> talking about or you're getting defensively and taking it personally because I'm, a, I'm discussing or challenging your, your ideological position. Mm. And it's, I find that almost across realms, as you were talking about, like, you know, the way it becomes like their, their entire identity about a fixed point or the polarization of a singular topic. And it's, it's interesting to me how we've got to that level of debate or discussion that, you know, we can create echo chambers. We can create these environments we exist in where everyone just tells you you're right. Nothing else can be possibly wrong. How you view the world, that is absolutely how it is. And then the second, it's almost like an invader comes in and says, Hey, you know what? That's actually not true. And then it's like, holy shit, they're trying to conquer us all, make these people yeah. suffer. Reality is I'm just saying, hey, you might be a little bit wrong here. Let's talk about it. And yeah, I just I just find it so interesting the way just simply challenging someone's belief or opinion or idea, which should be to me the basis or premise of of ideological debate, discussion, philosophy, is almost like literally putting a gun to their head and saying, you know, that's it, you're done. It 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 yeah. we've got to that point. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a really interesting point, Ben. In terms of we are, we do both exist in similar, quite dogmatic spaces. Like my mum's a nutritionist, uh, oh, yeah. like a doctor in nutrition, and she works for the NHS, and she specialises in obesity. And she's she she is a very simple, no nonsense approach nutrition. Mm-hmm. I'd always go to her with these obscene thing. Mum, what do I do for carbs? What do I do with this? Should I eat fat? Should I not eat fat? Should I eat? She's like everything in moderation, George. Yep, that's that was her advice. Yep. continually for, yep. about 30, for about 30 years and I was like there's got to be more to it and she's like everything in moderation I'm like what about apples and she's like how many you eating 10 a day or one a day or what about chocolate Is it, how many, you eat chocolate eat fat well, you eat whatever you want just don't eat too much and uh I think there's a, a big part of my voice is my mum's voice mm-hmm. very very no nonsense matter of fact uh so I mean, yeah it's a very interesting parallel you've drawn there between nutrition and, and what I talk about um yeah, and and there's the dogmatic beliefs between the two, um, and how and how, again similarly, if you're if you're confronting someone about their approach to nutrition, often uh, you're you're not just approaching them as being wrong, but you're also essentially eroding their livelihood. If they've built a career or business around this thing being true, and you're saying that's actually not true or not yep, entirely right. true, 
I can get, I can understand why they would be defensive, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, you know, it's a very interesting parallel to draw, and I hadn't, I hadn't really considered that. Um, I got, I got a lot of, I, I have a weird amount of personal trainers and uh, nutritionists and vegans following me. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I guess it's maybe we're living parallel lives, and I, I think sympathetic <laughs> yeah. each other. Yeah, that's, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed that as some of your your demographic, but I, I can see. I can I can see why like if we if we look even like to not go straight into to uh, health straight away but generally even amongst the the men that I work with and myself being a a man that that does what I do in the realm that I work in we we have a lot of mental health issues a lot of the a lot of my coaching oh, yeah. a lot of my training a lot of my programming it's the the programming and education side around that aspect is a piece of piss. The hard stuff to me is getting someone's life set up to handle. You know, okay, you're a working father, you're you know, you're a, mm. an expected tradesman, you're a, a widowed son or a husband or what have you. You're mm. you know, separated, divorced. You've got a FIFO job. You're expected to work night shifts. I've got the amount of that sort of stuff that I've got. And it's like, all right, let's. How can we optimize your life to handle this stuff? And then also have a goal outside of that you want to progress in that, you know, you want to work on for you personally and not feel guilty about it or ashamed about it, or that you're, you know, one of the, a lot of the common arguments that I have is that for any, any man who wants physical development, they're vain or they're arrogant or egotistical and talking to them. The problem to me is like, they're not, they're very uh, insecure, doubtful, uh, borderline sensitive males that find the degree of say bodybuilding or physical physical development as a means of an expression, as a mm. means of coping, as a means of training and pushing their self or their struggles to the physical sense. Um, and it's just it's just interesting that you know we we have that that kind of um, you know conversation, if you will, or even just like those issues that 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 that's that's an aspect of men's health that the people don't really see or they just assume that you know it's fine, it's perfectly okay. But when we when we get to them, they're actually it's not about vanity. It's not about egotisticalness. It's not about being arrogant or a dick. There, there's actually a means of an, almost an art to what they do and mm. what we do. And it's just never looked at that way. Um, you know, not, not to get straight into the health side of things, but that it, it's a, a sort of parallel here where, you know, there is the men's health side and the men's mental health and physiology and training and, and uh, a psychology that play such a intricate role, I guess that, you know, it's not really spoken about. Yeah, no. I mean, I think, I think we're all guilty of not granting men enough enough emotional depth. Uh, not not the same. We don't grant them the same richness of character as we do for women. And often, when we apply that to a, a gym, we think we think all these men are vain, shallow mm-hmm. gym gym buddies. When in fact, they're not. They're just as vulnerable as anyone else. And often, I guess their body is a consequence of perhaps deeper insecurities within them. And uh, when we also factor in that men are men are less likely to talk. Perhaps they lack they lack the emotional linguistics of women uh, to an extent. And we got to ask ourselves, what are they not telling us? Like we know that men aren't speaking to us, so we have to we have to sort of hypothecate on what aren't they telling us? Mm-hmm. And often the things they aren't telling us are insecurities or traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. And how does that how does that warp our language and our perspective of men? We seem to see, we see see men as ubiquitously privileged, and there are certain privileges to being a man, but there are also missing parts in the conversation that they aren't telling us, uh, missing missing stories and things that they haven't told us. I mean, I mean, I don't want to keep going back to domestic violence, but one of the one of the, the flaws in the way we collect data is that it's based on police reports, 
Mm-hmm. So one in one when it, when people say one in three victims is a man, what they're actually saying is that one in three police reports is a man. Yes. Because men are what men are like two and a half times less likely to talk to tell anyone about their mm-hmm. their abuse, and they're also less likely to recognizing it recognize it at all. We've got to ask ourselves, like I said, what aren't men telling us? What aren't the men in the gym telling us? What how do they feel about the bodies? And we have to give them uh, the space to talk about it and encouragement. But we also have to just give them the respect that they are not just uh, a non-playable character in your your life. They are a, a deeply rich and interesting person. And um, I, feel, I feel like I mean, I'm I think I have a lot of compassion for the guys at the gym because they, they are stigmatized and stereotyped as just this, this hyper masculine mm. guy. But I mean, I, I've the, the people I've met like yourself, Ben. I've just been I've been such lovely authentic sensitive people that just go completely against that archetype and um i think <clears throat> it's not enough to say men can talk but we also need to give them the space to talk and uh and then listen and, and obviously listening to what they've got just to say. an interesting interesting like uh, something that i've i've i think you said on a couple of your posts maybe is one of the issues that i find when we say men should talk is that we presume communication is simply from the perspective of vocalizing a problem. And that mm. uh, to wrap that back to say training is uh, are men talking just not in a way that you wish to hear it or in a way that yeah. you need to hear it. Do yeah. we have yeah. men talking in levels of communication? Like, like basic uh, psychological communication was a subject we studied in the first year of my degree. Now they they emphasize how to listen without speaking, how to read someone without like seeing what mm. they're saying without them saying it, knowing that they engage in the conversation or is there something buried beneath it? Is there something else going on? Mm. All these things, you know, firstly, I'd also like to recognize that there is potential in, in bodybuilders, trainers, athletes, gym goers. They just love it. They, we just live and breathe. This is what we do. It's not always a, a, oh, he goes to the gym five days a week. There must be a mental problem here. But if let's say that, let's, let's say there's yeah. something underneath the skin, underneath the surface, you, you know, we could say, oh, men aren't going to a therapist and talking. So therefore, you know, there's no data that that's not true. You know, there is no proof of their problems, but the, the amount of men that, you know, Perhaps there is something they're doing out of character, different to usual, or they've started a new hobby or got super fixated on something, and or they they don't they aren't communicating the way they used to, or they just you know that their their new actions are presenting a piece of information that you're not reading or that you're not seeing or that mm. you're not listening to. So they are talking. It's just mm-hmm. are you prepared to listen in a way beyond just your ears? Are you you know are you saying you know not you personally, but you know people saying that men aren't talking. Are they? Are you sort of just just blind or ignorant to the fact they are talking in the way that they think they subconsciously might not even be realizing they're doing yeah. by going to yeah. the gym and absolutely sending it on their body, or you know, by going full tilt into this new hobby, or you know, going locking themselves in the garage for twenty hours a day and working on the car? Yeah, we mm. have ways of solitude and solidarity that we 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 all in, in do things, but is there a way that you know? we are talking you're just not listening and yeah perspective that totally. you know what you're used to as communication or you know because it's been so perceived that that men don't want to talk to a psychologist therefore they aren't speaking or they don't deal with their emotions but we're dealing with it in a way that we know how or that we think is vocalizing it or we're just simply doing it and you're not really picking it up so yeah it's always a, a sort of principle that i come back to when people say that after you know spending subjects on communication as a language and recognize when people say men don't talk. I'm like, well, you're also identifying that they have these different behaviors or these different, uh, all of a sudden these new hobbies and these midlife crises. That's communication. We are that's mm. communicating. Mm. It's just you're not taking it in the same way. 
Yeah, I mean, people at least have to be open to the fact that maybe men are talking, but we aren't, we're just not great listeners, or we listen to a language that doesn't exist for men, and they choose to communicate in a way that we don't recognize. Uh, I mean, there's other areas, I know you'd be a great example in terms of exercise, but also there's, I mean, we're very open to the fact that men at work, because men have dominated work for so long, that we've built a space that only recognizes achievement from a male point of view in terms of the work environment, but there's also environments where women have dominated like uh, psychology and psychotherapy mm-hmm. where where our approach to our solutions are based more around what I think women need like talk therapy yes like I, I work a lot of therapists uh and psychologists and they're like all, all of our interventions are based around sitting in a room normally of a woman and getting them to talk and I'm like well maybe men don't want to talk maybe the fact that only one in four therapists man is a problem mm-hmm. uh maybe maybe men are talking but in a language you don't understand um Maybe men need group therapy. Maybe men need uh, physical exercise and that sort of therapy. Maybe I've heard someone say men don't like face-to-face time. We like side-by-side time. Like yes. It's not about talking. It's about doing things together. That's why when men don't remember what you said, but they remember what you did, yes. it's because they like the thing you do. Like Men like going on walks. Men like going on bike rides. Men like you know, going to the gym together. They, that, that is therapy for us. Yes. Not all men, but often often men. I, I mean, I, I personally subscribe to that. I I, I feel Ooh. way better going to the gym. That's my that's my therapist. And and also not just therapy, but also education is another one that comes to mind where boys, one of the things people just do not believe me on is that boys being behind in education. Oh yeah, that blows my mind. Like every I mean the, the, the headlines are every single stage in more or less every single Western country, boys are behind uh, and significantly behind and have been behind for decades. People just don't believe that. It's interesting oh. because in the, in the developing world, girls are behind. Africa, some parts yeah. of the Middle East, girls are of course behind, and he can't he can't talk about education without talking about Afghanistan, what's happening to women there. Hundred percent. But but in the developing world, sorry, in the developed world, America, Europe, and Australia, boys are behind, and uh, it's an interesting paradox. And but when we look at why boys are failing or falling behind, people talk about oh they misbehave, they're acting up. And I'm like, they're not misbehaving. They're just not behaving like girls. Yes. They're not. And if you look at male teachers, for example, one in five teachers being a man, they're way less likely to problematize boys' behavior because they, they can see it's not a naughty boy in their classroom. It's a boy that's just not interested or bored or frustrated. Yes. And perhaps we should look at the way we teach boys so they do feel engaged, so they don't have to act in these ways that are misperceived as naughty. So whenever I hear that, everyone's like, boys misbehave boys don't behave i'm like no they're not misbehaving they're just not behaving like girls because boys aren't girls uh we are we are in general different in terms of how especially in terms of how we learn and especially at that time of life where we're all just flooded of testosterone or estrogen or whatever else and um we need to in the way that we re-examine the work environment to make space for women and rightly so we also need to re-examine education especially in developed in developed countries and also uh, the psychological industry, both of which are 70 or 80% women. So, yeah, I, I mean, I encourage I both sides. That's, I think if I remember the statistics correctly, uh, 75% of social scientists in Australian or Western campuses are female. And then yeah. that obviously that leads to the fact that of the graduating classes, that would predominantly make 75% of working clinicians or working practitioners yeah. In those fields of, say, talk therapy, uh, clinical psychology, um, you know, things like acceptance and commitment therapies, um, yeah. mindfulness practices, all those sort of like those progressive moved on from you know, your basic sort of psychological undergraduate. That then the the logical conclusion then is that the working field now is just dominated by, say, a female. And, and yeah. 
you know, that, that isn't wrong. It's not bad. It's just that if I can, I can sort of tell you right now, I've had uh, different interactions when it came to things like um, my father passing away. I saw mm. a, I saw a, a female psychologist um, mm. purely because the first interaction with her was free because of like, he was on the Australian um, uh, like medical system. So kind of like the, the post passing was all kind of like part of the package to get help uh, for the family and whatnot. Um, and she was great. There's nothing wrong with her or anything like that, but, when I was discussing about the ways in which I deal with my problems or the way in which I go do things yeah. to her, it was like, I had to sort of sit there and explain myself. It was sort of like, a, yeah. well, what, what yeah. do you mean? Like, what do you mean? You don't, you didn't like sulk or cry or sit. I was like, well, I had to go back to work. I had to go do shit. I had to go like, it's yeah. like you know, how did you, how did you process? I'm like, I processed it. I processed it. It happened. I accepted it. I'm pretty, I'm pretty heavily stoic in how I look at philosophy and right. life. And from that, I knew that I had to get on with my life and help other people. Like Peterson yeah. said, like, be be the man that can, that, what is it? One of his rules is be the person at the funeral that can help your family. And yeah, yeah, yeah. to me, it was kind of like, well, that, that's my role. That's the thing that I have to do is mm. I have to be there for the rest of the people in my family who aren't. And yeah, it was just an interesting sort of, you know, the way she sort of looked at it was like, uh, you know, well, hang on you can't be okay because you haven't sat down and like, you know, broke down. I was like, well, you know, I, mm. I, cry, I cry when it happened, but then to me, I'm like, okay, well now there's no point crying anymore. I've got other mm. I've got things that, you know, my life doesn't stop because his does. But you know, there was also periods where my mother was not that way and she was very heavily distraught, obviously understandable. Mm. It's completely fair, but you're not going to sit there as a, as a therapist and say, well, they're both the same thing. Like that's just not, mm. it doesn't make sense, but you know, that, that is a consequence obviously of having, purely a female dominated area that is so important. Mm. So then telling men to go talk about it is that I didn't have a male therapist in that system that I could access for free. I didn't have one that I could go to to be like, Hey, let's, let's, you know, maybe we go for a walk or train or do something and sort of like yeah. use that to open up the boundary to talk. Um, there wasn't <clears> exist. That wasn't kind of there for me, which again, it wasn't the end of the world, but at the same time, it was just interesting how, she sort of viewed it through the lens of, oh, you're supposed to be broken right now. Why aren't you like emoting? Like, yeah. well, emoted. I've already emoted enough that that makes sense to me. Now I'm on to the next thing. Yeah. Like you express yourself in your own way. Like maybe going to the gym and exercising is your means of expression. Exactly. Uh, that you, yeah, you're a perfect example of how, what I mean in terms of the psychological industry. I don't think it's not intentionally flawed. I don't think there's some sort of like weird conspiracy of women that are trying to exclude men. It's just, they are acting in a way that they know, in that way that they express. It's not something intentionally happening. But I, I know there's research, Australian research, actually, ironically speaking, and they, they asked men, why did you drop out of therapy? Biggest reason, I think bigger than all the other reasons combined, is like, I just didn't have a connection with my therapist. Yeah, didn't have a connection. And I, I mean, I'm working directly on research on that, uh, unpublished. So it's like really, really fresh, like new right. research. And they ask why, what the barriers for help seeking for men? And like, one in 20 men responded with like shame i feel ashamed and that is certainly is a problem but three times more men felt a distrust for their therapist mm -hmm. and they had negative experiences of therapy so although shame the, the shame that men experience going to therapy which is a problem the problem of not feeling that they can trust the therapist is three times bigger yeah not feeling understood and i feel like we need to look at that more seriously and with the way in which we're I feel like it's almost going the wrong way where inside psychotherapy, there is more and more ideological viewpoints around traditional or toxic masculinity and patriarchy. And these, these ideological, political, highly political, non-scientific concepts that are now being written into the very guidelines. So 
the APA, which basically gives all the guidelines for psychologists mm-hmm. and therapists in America, they wrote that directly into their latest guidance for treating men and boys. And I just like that there's no place for that in science. And, oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. Like, but the other thing I was going to say is that I, I, I have learned everything I know about my emotions. Every all of the my emotional language and emotional intelligence I owe to the women in my life. I've learned so much from women, from former girlfriends and uh, friends, friends and stuff like girls. Um, I, I I owe a debt that I will never be able to pay off in terms of how am I how I'm able to talk and express myself. But so too, I think there is some stuff that women can learn from men in terms Absolutely. of how we process emotions. And you mentioned stoicism, and I'm not trying to say men are exclusively associated to stoicism because I know our mutual friend Brooklyn is believes in stoicism too. But I think there is something to learn for men and stoicism, especially mm-hmm. where you don't allow yourself to become affected emotionally by things you can't control. Yes. So anything out of your control, then you let it go. You don't yes. let it emotionally destabilize you. And I feel like though there are really valuable tool sets that men have in how they process their emotions, where they're not emotionally stunted. We're not like, uh, we're not like problematic in that way, but there's, there's certain things that I think women can learn from men. And of course, women men can learn from women and I have learned from women, but I'm a big, I, I'm a lover of stoicism. I think I'm naturally stoic. And uh, when things go wrong in my life, I'm always the most calm in the room. Like I'm always, I'm very good at working out what can I control, what can't I control. Yes. And things I can't control, I'm like, okay, it's done, it's over. Like if I if I miss a turning on a motorway, Obviously, I can't do a U-turn and go back. Yeah, exactly. so I let it go. I yes. let it go. I'm like, I missed it. I'm going to be late. It's fine. I'm not going to get there any sooner by panicking. And whilst expressing emotions is helpful, so is processing them. And I feel like men are very good at processing emotions, uh, not always expressing them. And we need to have both both tools, expressing and processing. Yeah, that is literally like the, the definition of emotional intelligence regulation, is that you not only have the capability of understanding and processing your emotions, but when necessary, you can display them. But at the same time, and then I guess where, yeah, and this is something that I, in my, when I teach mindset and I teach mindset-based work to clients, to potential clients, to bodybuilders and things like that, is that when we're looking at apathia, which is what the Stoics refer to as uh, not being emotionally too attached to anything, and then obviously the dichotomy of life, which is looking at what do you have mm. power to change and what you don't, when we look at those two things, you know, they're, they're tools that I generally find most of my clients benefit from across their life. So, you know, whether we're put into, into aspect in bodybuilding, also I, I will see it improve their life at training, at, at the family life, at mm. their jobs, their careers, their education, their study, you know, getting people to understand that it's not, it's not a, a like, there's a weird, it's ironic actually to sort of talk about it is that amongst uh, like psychotherapy and parts of the current sort of psychotherapy realm, there's perceptions of stoicism that it's toxic, that it's emotional stunting or that it's an emotional dysregulation yeah. and things like that. It's, yeah. it's almost anti, anti uh, thesis uh, in terms of like um, in terms of psychotherapy, but it's like it, it, it works in conjunction with where we're looking at, you know, how if we can teach men to understand or, you know, the, especially when we look at like the dangerously, I guess, emotionally damaged men, the mm. ones who are causing the problems that, that do need the work is, looking at how we can help regulate their emotions, how we can look at controlling things, not taking it out through just pure rage. Okay, what's the rest of your emotions mm. you're feeling? Okay, well, now you feel them. Do you need to display all of them? Uh, yeah. Can you control them? Is there something about them you can't control? What do we do about that? Like, mm. instead of simply saying, like, this is toxic or this is a problem, there are, you know, solutions amongst these therapies or these tools that people don't even like that, that 
actually have potential to solve problems or potential to be helpful. And I've found it across my clients when I teach them these things, like they don't realize I'm, I'm discussing stoicism with them. I'm just simply saying like, you know, mm. what wisdom of this, what is the virtue of this? You know, let's mm. look at what your, your control and uncontrolled list is, you know, is this something you've got direct control over? Is this something you have passion about? Is this something that you are too heavily invested in emotionally that you hope for an outcome that if you didn't get it would cause a problem? That's like, we're just using this to kind of get to a solution, but it's the principles of stoicism. And, you know, it's had a profound effect, I would believe on 75 to 80% of my clients who weren't already that way inclined, um, you know, to, to kind of give that, that emotional understanding that these men actually do have the capacity for emotional regulation and intelligence. They, they get to practice these things and put them into, into use. And I've seen them all benefit from them. I've seen them all improve as people, uh, not just mm. as athletes or bodybuilders <laughs> or gym goers, generally from these sorts of things where we're teaching them about further emotional regulation, emotional intelligence, and, and kind of to control it. Well, now they're also improving their love life, their relationships. I'm seeing them build families and businesses. And it's like, like give men this this chance to have the capacity to be emotionally in charge but also emotionally controlled mm. and you'll see stronger men get built yeah absolutely i mean i guess it goes back to not us not granting the same emotional depth to men like an angry man for example we see an angry man but often ang anger is is a secondary emotion for something yeah. else often behind anger is something else usually fear mm -hmm. or insecurity or you know, fear of abandonment or pain and Instead of just seeing anger, ask ask what is making this person angry. Mostly, mostly men, and try and talk to that person. Try and talk to the the vulnerable child, I guess, beneath the angry man. Uh, yeah, and I just think, and also I don't. I I, I want to just uh, qualify what I was saying in terms of stoicism. I also don't think stoicism is the be all answer to everything. Oh no, absolutely like, not. Uh, putting in a metaphorical language that I I I live in my own place now. I'm learning the tools of DIY with more <laughs> greater or lesser success. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and if I, if I tried to do everything with a hammer, then I would have, a, I'd live in a complete mess, but I, I buy different tools for different yes. needs. I, ha I have like saws and hammers and, you know, all this sort of stuff. I've just bought a, uh, I don't know what it's called. This new, <laughs> this new drill thing. And I feel like emotional regulation is the same where, we need to have different tools and different tool 100%. sets for different problems. So sometimes it is best to express a problem. Sometimes it's better to process it. Sometimes it's best to do a bit of both or neither. And I, I need to, we can't fall into the same problem of being like stoicism is the answer to everything. It's just one answer to certain things. And sometimes it's good to actually talk, of course. And um, I just want to recognize that. Oh, hundred hundred percent. I completely agree that, yeah. And this is why, this is, I think, that makes the way I coach quite unique. And I guess even the way I look at data, research, evidence is that that we look at it from best practice of application and work back from that. What is optimal and how can we sort of take a step back from there and sort of introduce it or use it as a tool? There's never like a this one exercise is the best exercise. This one mental tool is the best mental tool. This acceptance yeah. practice is the absolute practice to use and you'll solve everything. The second I see that from someone, instant red flag. If I see a coach yeah. or a therapist or a psychologist or a doctor, like this is the way, I'm like, well, you're already wrong. You already don't understand science enough as it is. You don't yeah. understand the fact that no science can be absolute. And if you claim absolutism yeah. in science, you're automatically yeah. wrong. Yeah. Well, it's not scientific. And that, that exactly. will go back exactly. and we're going back to the scientific uh, model of scientific theory uh, in terms of that. And um, I always I always try to remind people that on my my blog where I don't I'm not going to give you a one size fits all solution to every single thing 
I mentioned how uh, earlier in, in on this podcast how spanking often causes uh, people to become violent later in life. Uh, in terms of what spanking is, you're using physical violence to correct someone's misbehavior, which is essentially what domestic abuse is. Like your mm-hmm. one partner is trying to correct, quote unquote, someone's misbehavior through violence, and mm-hmm. they learn that a lot of the time through childhood. But that that doesn't mean that I think every single person, every single child who's spanked, grows up becoming an abuser. And it's really annoying when I say that because people are like, well, I was badly badly spanked as a child and i'm a great person and i'm like yeah what two-thirds of people that smoke heavily don't die from lung cancer but that doesn't mean smoking isn't bad for you yes yes yeah exactly. uh, like I, I walked across the road earlier without looking that doesn't mean people don't get hit by cars uh yes, we're trying to we're trying to give you a wide set of tools that you can use in whatever cir- set circumstances and it's frustrating that people immediately go to their very, very extreme situations to try and disprove what I'm saying, rather than taking every single thing I say as a, a different perspective and then building that into their tool set of life and then working out themselves which one works best in any given circumstance. It's, um, it's interesting how it's interesting yeah. how uh, when it comes to the challenge of self of self identity, anecdote holds such value in the face of actual overwhelming data <clears throat> understanding. Yeah. Like when we yeah. look at, when we look at diverse sample populations and like, you know, the, the realm of training and physiology, like our, our data pools are rarely as big mm. as, as in social studies. But when you have like a social study that shows you like cross-culturally, cross-field, cross-realm, this is the, yeah. the, the normality, this is the bell curve. And you get someone coming and go, oh, but that happened to me and this didn't happen. You're like, yeah, yeah. in this instance, you're <laughs> the outlier. You're the exception to the rule. Yeah. You can't use yeah. that level of thinking to apply to life because you know just because you didn't get caught by the cops when you're speeding doesn't mean you won't ever get a speed yeah, yeah. like you can't use that premise anywhere else but for some reason as soon as your identity is challenged that's the go-to is like no but this worked for me so therefore you're wrong yeah especially when you're talking about subjects where there's a huge amount of very painful personal stories in terms of i keep talking about domestic violence but there always seems to come up someone there's always someone in the comments that's sharing a very powerful story of their own experiences which are very very important but that but your personal experiences you shouldn't base your entire worldview on your own personal experiences no matter how painful they are because we need we need to look at like broader data in terms of like at the wider trends outside of your personal experiences um and this is it's difficult because when we look at statistics on that level they become deeply depersonalized and i believe as human i mean we look at talking about dunbar's number now where how many people can you have in your life that you can meaningfully understand and help? And I think I think like 150 is the, the number of people in a, for a human being that we can meaningfully connect to mm-hmm. before they become a faceless statistic. Yeah. And uh, and they start. I mean, I don't want to get into the habit of quoting Stalin, but he said, uh, "One death's a tragedy; a million deaths is a statistic." Mm-hmm. And I think there's truth to that. Where we look at a pie chart or a spreadsheet of millions and millions of people. And regardless of how compelling the data is, we don't see it in the same way as we would see someone who sits down next to us and has a cup of tea right. and tells us about painful experience. And like one of those, one of those experiences, either the stat, the, the personal story and human testimony has way more resonance with us as it should, because we are actually human beings. We're not pie charts and spreadsheets ourselves. So, I mean, that's going back to what I, my, my strategy in terms of how I communicate, where I, I do want to include broad national data from huge surveys but i also want to include personal experiences too because both of them have their own sense of resonance um and it's difficult you need need both sides and that's what 
yeah, that's why feminism is so successful because it made the personal political and it encouraged women to share stories. And that's why I think men talking is important because that's that gives us this, the kicking off point to to do further research into what they're talking about. Like how how are we ever going to investigate these issues if men aren't even telling us what they are? Exactly. So, and it's it's yeah. it's important, I think, to understand like when like you know, when we look at social studies and social sciences and social data, that where which we at a certain point you simply have to understand things. You have to understand uh populations, you have to understand demographics, you have to understand in order to solve a problem, you have to understand it. And this is cross, you know, nutrition, physiology, psychology, mm. social sciences, epidemiology, biochemistry, whatever it is. In order to provide a solution, you have to first understand that it, A, it's a problem to begin with, or there is a problem there, or there's potentially a question there, and then find or compel the data that shows that that is an outcome or a problem. Here's a solution to fix it or make a change or adjust <laughs> or program. Where though it is, is we're, we're looking at numbers here, and this is, you know, this, again, the similar premise that we, we look at when we talk about, you know, we get the same sort of response from people who say, like, look, this is the basics of obesity and how you like you lose weight. Instantly, you get the population sample that comes in. It's like, well, my thyroid's this. You're like, okay, yeah, yeah. you're you're one in the one million. That is yeah. a normality under the bell, bell curve. You're the outlier to the to the extreme. There's not to dismiss your story, but at the same time, like we can't use you as a basis for everyone because that isn't yeah. a normal functioning thyroid. That isn't a normal functioning person. We need to coach for the normal person and work outwardly from that. It's we're bringing, you know, we're using the <laughs> data so that we can humanize a potentially dehumanized concept or idea like especially if we look at mental health and physical health and we look at men's health like in a certain degree we have dehumanized the conversation and so when we're simply looking at the data and trying to bring a a, a conversation to the to the surface we're trying to bring a sense of humanity back to these people that hey their problems are just as real and that there is potentially you know problems here or issues here let's look at the data and then it becomes hard because you're like well the data says that you're wrong i'm not saying that you personally are wrong your experience is wrong but mm. you know, the data is showing that potentially your personal opinion isn't the norm or the the regular and we need to establish that and obviously that would you know that entire premise creates an issue or creates a especially if you have any sort of empathy or degree <clears throat> of communication where you care or mm. as you said because you kind of like you know we, we get to a point where it's like look your your problem isn't isn't neglected it's not negligent it's not insignificant insignificant yeah but it's not everyone and we have to talk yeah. not just to you but to everyone and i mean i can only imagine the the mental toll um you know i've seen you take breaks from social medias i've seen you say like you know mm. it's going away for a bit um because like I, I i just in the way i coach people i can see how that across forty four thousand followers would be overwhelmingly uh draining to it's have to explain yeah. yourself all the time or touch on points or well sorry i didn't include this demographic like it would get exhausting yeah it's as well i mean we touched on a point a very negative part of social media and human I mean, we're all the hero of our own story mm-hmm. we're all the main character and we should be but often on social media people are very self-centered and if something doesn't relate to them personally they throw the whole thing up yeah and um we also we also look we also try to go to the most extreme and visible examples of stuff like i don't know I'm, i seem to be infatuated about talking about domestic violence on this podcast but <laughs> whenever i whenever i talk about male victims of abuse so there's always someone that comes in and says, well, you know, women are killed more often. And that is true. But that is, is also true. That is a very, very extreme form of domestic violence. If you look mm-hmm. at the, the millions and millions of Americans that experience domestic abuse every year, not that, the very like, 0. whatever percent of them are, are killed. And um, 
it's frustrating that we are drawn to these highly vis- visible dramatic instances rather than looking at the the, mon- the mon- almost mundane nature of some of these issues and um yeah i mean also i keep coming back to the scientific theory uh scientific method of like uh we talked about earlier about how you present an idea in science and then you try your very very best to falsify it and to disprove so you come yes, with a yeah. hypothesis and then you attack the idea and if you lift it up and if the scientific community can't destroy your idea within a certain amount of time you can reasonably expect there's an element of truth to it and we we you and i ben both live in areas where in talking spaces where that doesn't exist mm-hmm. uh, we, we have a theory and then we don't subject it to, to the same level of scrutiny yes. because they're so often tied to our personal identities they're not we don't look at them as dispassionately and externally and i just really wish we would i really wish we would look at things in a way that is scientific and expose them to that scientific model of rigorous disproval because that's how science exists that's how science has moved forward for hundreds of years where we come with a theory we expose it to scrutiny it's falsified or it's proven accurate and we move on and uh that i'd I'd really i wish we i saw that nutrition as well uh rather than people becoming so emotionally attached to their own personal ideas and their own personal experiences and take a step back as difficult as it is and try to look at it from a, an impartial point of view as much as possible. And the same, I mean, the same is true for so many things I talk about in terms of domestic violence and the way we see domestic violence is 60 years old now. Uh, and we need, we need to have a new set of ideas and we need to scrutinize the old ones. And uh, otherwise there's no moving forward. To, 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 one of the things, again, cross, cross of these, these two realms or fields in which we both exist is that, the idea of challenging the old way is wrong or, you know, perhaps it's uh, grounded in bigotry or hate or some some sort of phobic issue when any other realm of science, if you go back to chemistry, you go to philosophy, you go to uh, physics, there is like, we're still to this day trying to disprove things like Einstein's theory of relativity. We're still trying to, okay, waves of dark matter. How do we understand this? What does string theory say about that? We're literally in those realms of thousands of years of science, we're still trying to say, hey, you know what, this person was wrong or potentially this wave back then is out of date. We can actually do things better. You know, how do we split the atom to make a different type of bomb Mm. that will create Mm. nuclear power or or fission? Mm. We're creating different techniques from the old data because, hey, actually, look, this person missed this in the equation. But in these sort of polarizing mainstream or captivated sort of realms it's it's almost like a a a a morally wrong position to say hey potentially that person wasn't on the right track well they had the idea but they've missed a few data points or key variables to the equation that make a big difference you know if we include men here in this level of analysis perhaps Mm. the data isn't quite as accurate as you think or if we Mm. include include this demographic of men into the discussion all of a sudden there is a variation in abuse or violence or suicide or death Mm. Uh, but but or you know insane thing if we include this population into the uh, the data pool when it comes to low carb diets or when it comes to uh, mm. averaging out the high thyroid or low thyroid, you know, suddenly we're seeing, hey, you know what, your your like the way you did it previously was wrong, uh, or the way you would, were doing it isn't quite correct, and now we have a whole different set of number points or data points that we can actually study. Mm. 
the second you do that, like if we look at the um, the there was a, th- a three person team that started writing the data on um, oh God, I can't remember. I think it was one of the first key points that talked about men being equal recipients of uh, of uh, violence in interpersonal mm. relationships, and they were literally chased out of town ta- out of town oh yeah to the point that they were threatened like bombs were threatened to their houses yeah. they had their doctorates redacted they had their, uh, yeah. their careers completely destroyed that's yeah. isolation all because yeah. it's, hey actually you know what this model we've used for assessing violence may be a little bit flawed and here's a new way to do it and they're just like no nah, no way yeah that happen. like at a certain point, like these people are simply trying to make society better. We're all simply trying mm. to improve society. Like even if we go back to the Stoic reference, that like the the wisdom and virtue in trying to bring society forward through our field of knowledge or education or what we study, it's 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 a it's a it's something grounded in virtue and morality and righteousness. Mm. I guess if you want to mm. be really philosophical about it. But because it's challenged your old way of thinking, it's instantly like it's met with an attack or it's met with a degree of violence or hatred or, you know, this this just simply can't be allowed. We have to throw this out, maybe with a bath, yeah. get rid of it. And I just, yeah, I find it so, uh, well, it got to a point like to, to, to not even be on your level. We ran a men's health group for a while and the level of argument and discussion that I got into with people when I was trying to say why I was doing it, I had to stop because it was taking away. It was making me angry, yeah. I was frustrated. I was exhausted. I was drained. I was struggling to do my actual job. I was struggling to do my studies at school mm. because I was just so dilapidated from this level of conversation. And it saddened me to a degree because I was like, I was trying to help these men and I was trying to help these fathers. I was trying to help these people. I create a space where it was just us, just for us. And all of a sudden I was some sort of like hate filled misogynist pig, this, that, and the other, all because I was like, you know what? Men yeah. are actually suffering from separation of their children, losing their loved ones, mm. or like being taken away from the kids, um, you know, having to work 30 hours a day in a 24 hour day, just to try and make some money to pay back what they owe or pay off a debt or, you know, mm pay child's uh, child custody so they can see their kid you know all these things where i'm like you know that to me got exhausting it got to it got to a point where i was like i i need to pick what battles i'm fighting here because it's become so draining i was getting so worked up by it and so so well you know like i said at the very start people started coming after my job and started coming to like the personal places where i was working i was like i i can't do this wow. like, I, I generally can't do this sort of level of engagement purely for trying to say hey i want these dads to be healthy too yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a lot. That's, that sounds like some very tough experiences for you. I'm sorry that happened. Um, I I have not had that same level of pushback. I've not had anyone come to my 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 work. Uh, but I mean, I wish them well if they did. Um, in terms of men's health, we we've got into this idea of like this swinging pendulum of men and women, where because women were disadvantaged in health, using your example, historically speaking. You know, pre-1965 in America we seem to think that that, that that continues to this day and we've now swung the pendulum in the other direction where uh, the facts in America for example is if you take nine if you take ten the top ten causes of death for Americans right now men lead in nine of them mm-hmm. uh, and men men die in America at 1.4 times the rate as women so men's health is in the serious disrepair in america and then we've got to talk about suicide the greatest mm-hmm. the greatest threat to a man's life in my age your age any age below 50 in america and these are these serious issues and when we look at what is the government doing to solve it very little is the answer like mm-hmm. we have four america has four different offices for women's health mm-hmm. that are government funded research organizations looking to disease and diet requirements and 
of various different issues that affect women's health, four of them, none of them for men, not a single one. And I think we need to get out of this idea that society is built just for men and actually look at the fact that if it is built for men, why is there not a single office for men's health? Mm-hmm. And there's loads of different areas. I mean, you chose health, but in the in the UK where I live, there were two, there's a minister for women, a minister for women's health, and a newly appointed ambassador for women's health, all three governmental positions dedicated to supporting women, wow. women's health in particular. And I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. Excellent. I don't, I mean, I'd make it 10, but I just wish we had the same for men. Like the numbers, the numbers I've looked at, I mean, I don't recommend reading it because it's depressing, but there'd be every single death in the UK is put into a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And I, I once worked out how many more men die below the age of 65 than women. And the, the excess is 20,000 men every, 20,000 more men die in the UK below the age of 65, 20,000. And I worked it out as a, as a plane, as a jumbo jet full of men exploding every single week. And there is no minister for men. There is no minister for men's health. Mm-hmm. There's no mm-hmm. ambassador for men's health. And there's no discussion to appoint any of those roles. So when I hear about a structure built for men, I'm like, well, it doesn't make sense for, to me. Because if it were, there would be a minister for men. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wish we were able to look at the objective reality in front of us. And and, and sent to, to a point, move past the past where women were discriminated against and suppressed and, and not fall into a system where we've swung the pendulum in the opposite direction. Another example is um, education, which we talked about already. In, 19, in the early 1970s, women in America were 13 percentage points behind men in higher education. So women were being discriminated against. Women are out of education, especially at university. And uh, now, 50 years later, men are behind. Mm-hmm. And men are behind more behind now than women were 50 years ago. Yes. And there was no, there was no plan to correct that. Similarly to the Office for Men's Health, we have the Coalition for Women and Girls in Education, which is purely set aside for getting women and girls into education. And that's a, it's a great, great organisation, and I wish them well. But there is no similar organisation for men, despite men falling millions and millions of uh, fewer men going to university every year in America. And I was like, well, where is, this, where is the equality there? Where is the consistency of compassion and views and why are we so willing to overlook what is happening to boys and men in education and men in health, uh, purely based on the historical context? Because if anything, it's good news. The fact that we've managed to bring more women into education over the course of 50 years, so much so that they've now swung straight past the men, yeah, uh, is, is a sign of success. And now yeah. we need to do something similar to address the, the, the disparity. The irony that always gets me when we when we sort of look at denying the evidence, right? So uh, I think, I can't remember where I put the post, whether one of your posts or, or a Facebook page engagement back when I was really trying to discuss these, these sorts of topics and it was always met with some sort of argumentative response um, was like we can we can systemize and we can sort of map out if we look more at a global lifespan of say a young man and systematically young men's lives over a period of time, we can get enough of them. We can start to systemize and start to see sort of trends and patterns mm-hmm. and responses. Now, let's say like we're trying to solve things like violence. If we look at education, we're saying like, look, you know, uh, if you, if you want to talk about the topic of solving these violence problems, which apparently is what we want to do, we want to talk about how to improve men around, you know, violent behavior and violent responses. Um, and that, that's absolutely great. hundred percent. You know, if we can cut down on violence, fantastic. That's always a good thing. 
Okay, so how do we do that? Well, let's 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 look at something here. You're denying men the accessibility to be up to date in education and to be at the foremost, uh, I guess, productivity of education and uh, benefit from education and be educated, be intellectually uh, yeah. developed. Because with that then comes the, the potential that they now have an increased capability of earning capacity mm. and they have an increased response of uh, uh, mating pairs. They have a better health like likely outcome of family life. They have a better uh, a chance mm. of raising a better family. So they're creating an environment in which the, the men you were talking about that are at risk of being violent are no longer susceptible to the drugs and alcohol that lead to the violence, or they're less likely mm. to be involved in the areas that are established or connected with violence. Their testosterone, mm. apparently that, you know, I got a really aggravated by, and it was something less stoic of me, by James Cameron's comment that we need to remove uh, uh, testosterone because it's it's uh, toxic and dangerous. The, the, okay. the, the, uh, the testosterone, that when we understand it, when in the right environments and and sort of stimulating the right environments, things like you know productive competitiveness, uh, uh, protection, prov provision, mm. uh, defense, um, you know, uh, even said uh, things like education, the 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 testosterone response is actually shown to be pro-social behavior. It's pro-social mm. status. It's pro-social developing. So so testosterone itself, in and of itself, can be constructive and productive. It's not testosterone that's making us bad. You take you take that education. You know, you've educated these young men and how to be better and how to be productive and, and constructive and uh, involved mm. in society. Now they're creating other men around them who are doing the same thing. Now they're sort of in fields or realms of study or education or production or even in things like industry and construction where they're you know they're working on upskilling. They're providing more services. They're providing better services. They have high degrees of income. We know that with high degrees of income, there is less associated with violence, drug use, drug addiction, alcoholism, mm. uh, lower IQ. You know uh, more more high risk job fields like death industries mm. all of that suddenly diminishes so now you don't have an angry isolated violent emotionally damaged or exhausted man who's at the the end of his wits who's simply looking to find a way to deal with his pain which is probably going to be something violent just yeah. the fact that we've increased access to education which we are we can see clinically so you know there's I'm, I'm no doubt someone will probably see this and come across one day and say that that's not true okay we can see in the data when we look at it as we've spoken about when we're when we're bringing data points to a dehumanized issue we are trying to humanize it we're trying to make it acceptable and understood the education is quite the, the data is quite clear on where we lack in men's education to the degree of uh you know secondary school and then to college and then to post tertiary education is very very low we're we're, we're Insane, like let's build these things up alongside women and let's build these things up together. We're actually solving the problems or, or improving or decreasing the risk of the problems of things like violence, homelessness, drug addiction, yeah. alcohol abuse, because the risk factors that contribute to those are found in education. They're found mm. in whether or not someone is educated and developed and intellectually stimulated. Because in that in that sense of okay, now they have an education, they have greater earning capacity, greater job employment potential. Mm -hmm. They have different realms they can work in. So now there's a need for what they have to offer. They have unique skill sets that, as a supply and demand economy, works. Now they have money. They're earning. They're doing things. They're contributing. They have a constructive family, a positive environment for other men to learn from, or young men, or the kids. And it's just <laughs> it's just interesting to me. Like you know, I guess to to go loop around that that absolute ramble that. In the essence of people wanting to not have these discussions and not have these these uh, unpolarized camps where we're simply looking in the middle ground, I like to refer to myself politically as a centrist. I I mm. I, I never believe that someone has to be absolutely left or right or middle or top. Yeah. Or, you know, 
complete complete communist to complete socialist. Like I don't believe those things. You know, have to be uh, sorry, capitalist. Like they don't have to be that way. There's benefits to things that we can look at. And I like to think that yeah. politically across most things, I have that centrist, unemotionally attached view to a lot of things, whether it be training, nutrition, philosophy, yeah. politics, you know, data. We if we take that approach in that conversation. And we remove the emotion and actually just look at look at it with logic. In the very argument that you are hating on or trying to deny, which is you know, men uh, women need to be more educated than men, and we need to get more women into the campuses and the mm. schools. Let's take away from men's men's scholarships and men's degrees and whatnot. You're literally creating the environment in which the problem that you are arguing against is going to fester and rise. We're simply mm. saying, hey, let's encourage this because it actually reduces that problem. Like, uh, to yeah. me, it blows my mind that we're even at that point of conversation where it's such a paradox or, if not a negative feedback loop, that because we don't want to have those conversations, we don't want to talk together, we don't want to remove the emotion and the arguing and just the absolute, like, you know, uh, the, the, you never see a rational one, irrational sort of hard wing leftist want to talk about it. It's always like a very, aggressive and confrontational and defensive if we met with that conversation there'd be so many answers here that we could talk about and it just it blows my mind that when we actually look at the data if you you know stop looking at things in isolation we, we expand out and look at it globally there's almost like yeah. a map out of how to get to that solution but the second you bring it up it's met with just you know retort and violence and aggression and hatred or dislike or disagreement it's like what what, what the answer is there we're trying to help you get to the answer we want the answer but you're denying it. There's so many good points there. Um, lo- lots of I I agree with totally. Um, I mean, I consider myself left-leaning centrist too. Like I, I like it. Well, it's like, it's like when you go to a sweet shop and you're doing a pick and mix. You don't just want fizzy cola bowls, and you don't just want those gummy eggs. Exactly. You want a bit of everything. And I, I try to separate my emotions from my political viewpoints and my identity as much as possible. That allows me to pick the best best of both sides. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of good work being done by conservatives in the area that I'm in. And I find it quite alienating because I don't consider, I don't, I'm not conservative at all. I'm very, um, like I said, left-leaning centrist. And um, I just wish there was more acknowledgement of what's happening to men and boys within progressive left spaces. And also just more more willingness for people to go back into the centre. And what uh, the phenomenon you're describing uh, I, I, I quoted Stalin, and I'm going to quote Maggie Thatcher, with neither of people I like. But she said, <laughs> "If if you walk down the middle of the road, you get hit by both sides," and that's so true and hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. And it's like, if you show a, a centrist point of view, you, you do get you get picked apart by everybody. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's like that's where we should all be. Um, and I, like I said, I just wish we would see it that way. I do. I I. I, I know a lot of people talk about men's issues, men and boys' issues, mental health and stuff in the perspective that you said. And it's always been something I've been apprehensive about where everyone seems to frame what's happened to men and boys as a benefit, the solution to what's happened to men and boys as a benefit to women. Like, do you not want healthy husbands and fathers and sons? And if we, all, all equations have to be addressed by both sides. But I, instead of seeing it as a solution to women, I really encourage men to... I encourage people to talk about men's issues as a in their own right rather than as uh, a benefit to women primarily i mean of course they are there's secondary benefits to everyone but the primary objective for me is treating the issues primarily to benefit the men themselves yeah, rather exactly. than a benefit to society uh but it is true i mean uh, putting it to an example like uh we see men for example men who have fantasies of violence 
we often see them as problematic and perhaps they are and we see them as toxic and violent and whatever else you want to ascribe to them but there was a great study last year from the university of cambridge that um looked at looked at the experiences of men with violent fantasies and it looked at bullying in particular and it found that 97% of boys who are the most bullied in school developed violent fantasies later in life mm-hmm. and they uh, hypothesized that violent fantasies are a coping mechanism Cope, yep, to, yes. to, to deal with violence so if you're being yep. bullied as a boy or girl slightly less than for girls I think it was like 80% for girls but especially for boys if you've been marinated in violence in school you develop violent fantasies as a means of dealing with violence to come and once you start to talk about violent fantasies in that way suddenly you have a little bit of compassion for these men and boys who probably have experienced violence in childhood and um what is if it's basically validating what you said in the sense that if we can solve bullying in school we are also solving to an extent violence later in life and violent fantasies which which are enacted on women too um and you also mentioned testosterone i mean there's lots to be said about testosterone i mean jermaine is it jermaine greer called it a poison like thanks jermaine um but there's there's just a lot of highly political so-called research within testosterone but i i mean i've just finished reading uh tea by carol hooven and carol hooven is the co-director of biological evolution at harvard mm-hmm. so it'd be hard you'd be hard pressed to find someone more qualified to talk more about qualified to talk on it yeah tea and she talks about there's too many people talking about testosterone from a political standpoint and not not taking evidence-based perspective and whilst testosterone is correlated with someone being more aggressive uh, having higher sex drive mm-hmm. um, and how often men have more testosterone than women almost always uh, there also has positive benefits to testosterone and she talks a lot about the Carnegie Awards which have been existed for about 110 years the Carnegie Award is given to someone who risks or even loses their life to save a complete stranger mm-hmm. and she she found that basically every year maybe 100 are given out I think there's been 10,000 awards given out actually and she found that over a century, 90% of those awards have gone to men. And she said that men are also more likely to perform heroic acts to save strangers, not like their children, but like a random person in the street. So although men are the ones that are setting the fires, they are also the ones that are kicking down the door to haul you out of the building. And we need to acknowledge both sides of that and acknowledge the positive benefits of, of masculinity rather than pathologizing masculinity as something that's inherently wrong inside of people, it, we need to also acknowledge that it, it has done huge amounts of good. And uh, I just think we need, to, we need to look at the evidence for that. And um, Well, I mean, again, you can, again, you can, you can look at, so one of the, uh, one of the, like a big passion of mine is, was like uh, World War II. I love, I love military history. Mm. It's just like, uh, there's, there's, <laughs> arguments for my uh, almost uh, spectrum behaviors because i get really heavily fixated on some <laughs> things i get really uh, dedicated to a topic for a period of time and i'll just obsess mm-hmm. on it and i've been obsessed with world war ii for you know the better part of i'd say 15 20 years it was just something i just started getting interested in um one of my i, I, pre- I cre- presented a thesis in uh in year 11 high school in regards to world war ii i can't remember exactly what it was on but um you know it was something completely out of nowhere and i was just in love with the idea of learning about what we can take from history um mm. and the one of the things that, that you know we we don't really acknowledge is 
is, you know, well, one of the first data points is that 99% of all deaths in military history has been male. Yeah. That's just yeah. a straight up fact. I mean, we can look at Hillary Clinton who said women are the biggest sufferer of war, which just blows my yeah. mind. You can say Good that, old. even yeah. re remotely acknowledge that data point with that conclusion. But the in regards to how we're discussing uh, testosterone as a positive influence, yeah. the, the way in which that they provoked enlistment to things like the draft or, or, or sorry, not the draft, enlisting uh to, to get soldiers at first in World War II, England, America, Australia, all did the same thing, was evoking a sense of honor and courage and valor yeah. that we are, you yeah. know, like find that that national spirit, defend the people who can't fight for themselves, go fight the monster abroad because, you know, this is your call to a call to adventure. You know, you're, you're Frodo going on adventure, you're Bilbo Baggins going with Gandalf. Like this is your call to arms to save the people around you. And we got to a point where there was literally... Uh, I think one of the biggest records is something like six or seven times an underage soldier was reported for trying mm. to enlist in the army for his sense of duty and honor and courage that, you know, they, they took away, um, you know, sorry, they, they tried to deny him because he applied like six or seven times underage to get in mm. because there yeah. was this, this sense of sense of honor and dignity and respect that, you know, I'm going to go do my duty and I'm going to go fight these people and I'm going to go prevent the bad guy from winning Yeah, in the same same token where you're saying that this hormone is bad and you know people mm. with this are, are toxic and we have issues it's literally also the, the the thing that is making these competitive men these driven masculine uh dominating mm. men power hungry men want to go also use that dominant competitive power to fight the bad guy to fight the villain to defend you to be at you know at odds with evil do all these things and you know peterson mm. refers to quite a lot in, in his philosophy in the way he discusses um you know men with purpose that like it, it blows my mind that we can have this research available, just reflection or, you know, past uh, data. If we look at, you know, Band of Brothers, I'm, I'm watching Band of Brothers again at the moment for like the, the 20th time. And each time I pick it up and I watch it, especially from now from like my psychology lens, I'm watching the way in which these men who rushed off to defend each other and defend their country and fight together, they're, they're also going through, and it's, it's quite, it's acted quite well. Like, you know, the actors amongst it, are, they're pretty big name actors and it's, it's quite well produced and, and shown. They show things like their shell shock, their PTSD, their mm -hmm. undiagnosed PTSD, their, mm -hmm. their trauma wounds, their coping strategies, the way they, uh, you know, cling to their sense of honor and mm -hmm. the guy next to them, all these things that, you know, we're fighting for the ones back home. Like it's, it's drilled in mm -hmm. every single time you watch an episode. There's like, there's something about it where these blokes went there for the guy next to him in the hole, the guy next to him on the line, but also the ones back home. They're also the bad guys. And, you know, we've got to stop the Nazis and the Germans and all that yeah. jazz. And it can all be positively associated to testosterone, to to raising good men. I mean, we shouldn't be raising good men to be cannon fodder, but we're raised like you know, when when raised well, and they have these 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 uh, morals and these virtues, they're the very productive people that we're trying to create and say, hey, let's stop these violent behaviors or these tendencies. That same thing that you're saying we should get rid of, which is you know, testosterone and masculinity, is the very thing that has led to you having the freedom of the West. Like it's, it's the two can't be mutually exclusive. It just, that it's necessarily existing. And yeah, yeah it's just a, an interesting thing, the way in which we can publicly demonize such concepts of, of men and then also benefit so heavily from them across history. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, again, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I think a big problem is gamma bias. If you've heard of this gamma bias is basically how in uh, the areas of sort of suffering and um goodness we erase the male gender but in areas of privilege and perpetration we highlight the male gender yes uh, called gamma bias i mean i invite anyone to go and 
give it a Google. It's very interesting. Martin Siegers done a lot of writing into it. Uh, and he, and the way you can experiment with Mark Gambais in your day-to-day life is if you just look at the news, if a man does something bad, does something violent, look at how much his gender is highlighted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get like toxic masculinity, male violence, uh, patriarchy, this and whatever that. Uh, but when a man does something good, it's his gender is erased. Um, so like you have like gunman, knife man, henchman, con man, 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 man. But when a man intervenes to fight the knife man, which it almost does. always stranger is, does. bystander, stranger, yeah. vigilante, good Samaritan. I'm like, well, they're also men. Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> yeah. Big, the big, there's all men. And like, the uh, 9-11 is another good example. I mean, not good. I mean, it's an effective example in the sense that all the hijackers were men. I think maybe a dozen of them were men. That became a important. That became a big part of the discussion. But then also, every single firefighter who lost his life was a man. Yes, I think two hundred forty-four firefighters lost their mm-hmm. life because they ran into the building and they died. A hundred percent, not ninety-nine, but all of them. Yes. Uh, and it's a shame we only seem to talk about the bad that men do rather than ever gender the good. And we and if you tell people that. Oh, men went to war, but then immediately someone will say, "Well, men started the wars," and yeah. which is only partly true because women also start wars. Maggie Thatcher, for example, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. and also a lot of. I mean, it's actually been studies on that where women, uh, female monarchs in Europe were more likely to go to yes. war than male monarchs. But um, the problem is that who's doing it? Men who starts the wars? Men who writes the laws? Men. The problem is, is the mindset there is flawed already because you're seeing men as some sort of monolith monolithic gender where we're all the same and we're not all the same we're, we're different there's good men and there's bad men and the good men are fighting the bad men but because we're looped into some sort of monolith we're we're sort of um deprived of any sort of compassion or respect as men and uh it's same when you whenever you talk about men who are victims of violent crime which is substantial same the same thing again like who's doing it who's doing it men i know it's men but it doesn't matter it doesn't what, matter like, i don't know what does the crime not count like yeah. oh i'm sorry yeah. i didn't realize it doesn't hurt if the person beating me up is also a man like uh, what and if if the first thing you reach for is pointing out the genitals of the person doing the assault if that's the first thing you point then you're not an advocate at all you're just interested in blaming people yeah that's just pointing the same i i i mean as a, as a victim of violent crime i shouldn't be deprived of support or compassion because i have the same gender as a person who did it I don't, I don't understand how how that makes any sort of sense, and it's well, it makes sense in the, because we live in a society that has created this male oppressor class where men are just one thing, and that is often bad. And um, if 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 a man commits a crime, then it's, it's people almost seem to think that it's a man committing a crime against himself. Uh, and again, that goes that goes back to us not wanting to grant the same sense of individuality and emotional depth to men as we do for women and we, we just lump them all together um yeah i mean there's so much there's so many things what else <laughs> what else do you say um <laughs> i can ramble don't worry <laughs> yeah no yeah you're an expert it's, and but in, in a good way um but yeah no gamma bias is very interesting um so yeah i just wish i just think going away and looking at the news and asking yourself why do we only seem to gender the bad Another another example would be um when Sarah Everard was killed, a woman called Sarah Everard was killed in London, like one of the most horrific crimes you could think of, by a male police officer, and what followed over the next weeks and months was huge amount of campaigning against male violence, 
which is understandable. But during that time, the following week, I think, uh, a woman tried to kill herself by jumping into the Thames. And some random man, didn't know it, jumped in after her, tried to save her, and he died, and she survived. And no one ever gendered his act of heroism. Whilst a conversation was going on about male violence, and understandably so, no one ever talked about male heroism. Uh-huh. And we erased his gender, and we highlighted the gender uh, of the man who killed Sarah Everard. And um, another good example of gamma bias, I think. That comes from a kind of like a, to, to really touch on a really good point here, I think. Do you think that comes from almost an expected? So, you know, we talk about like a, a patriarchal structure where they, they view that, you know, it's dominated by men um, and we have this mm. power. Do you think that language change, that, that different, sorry, that, that different of language around, you know, who's responsible and who's not responsible or who's the hero but who's not the hero? Do you think that has something to do with the fact that when we look at, you know, across history and we look at the the uh, biopsychological evolution of, of, of the species, that it almost comes as a sense of expectation that, you know, we're willing to almost like an actor observer bias. We're willing to deny the, the heroism because it's a sense of expectation. It's expected that we do those things. It's expected that you're the serviceman, that you are the provider or the protector or the provisioner, you know, the, the builder and the constructor. Like we don't need to acknowledge that because it's expected you do it. It's part of the mm. uh, socially ingrained, uh, you know, presumptions or expectations. But then if you do something that we can make attention to, then, you know, all of a sudden, well, that's, that's not okay. That shouldn't be okay. We need to talk about the fact that you're a man. We need to talk about that because it's such a, it's such a, I find, you know, when, when it comes to the services that we're expected to do, you know, the risking of the lives, the building, the high rises, the construction, the sewerage, the brick lane, the, you know, the being cannon fodder, being shot at in the wars. These are things that, you know, it takes degrees of heroism. I've worked on construction sites, my old man yeah. scaffolding, yeah. The rise. it is not an mm. easy feat to get up and build those buildings that you're safely resting in. But, you know, it's kind of like a sense of, well, that's just what you should be doing. So why are we bringing yeah. into that? Though we don't recognize the fact that each person every single day that does those things is risking their life for that very thing. Yeah, I mean, it rings of the whole bare minimum thing I consistently hear. The bare minimum, men are doing the bare minimum. Uh, or you'll, you'll see conversations online about uh, what would you do in a world without men? And the conversations are almost entirely about how safe everyone feels and how much better life would be. But I'm like, what about like, you know, sewage or what about like electricity or water? <laughs> how do you think? Like, what about, run? what do you think, who do you think is scrab- like scrabbling around underground, like fixing the infrastructure that we all rely on? And like, why are we so reluctant to acknowledge that is mostly men? And, and it comes at a huge cost. Like, uh, like workplace deaths are almost exclusively paid, paid by men in America. It's something like four and a half thousand men killed every year, which is more than the entire Iraq war in terms of military losses. Mm-hmm. So more men are killed at work than all the US soldiers from all of the entire Iraq war over 20 years. And that is a huge I think it's thing. Nine and then, out of 11 here in Australia. And that's in, considering we are a very unionized country with a lot of EBA contractual yeah, agreements. I think it's 92% in the US. Um, in fact, it 91%. Um, and again, again, I know I mentioned the office for women's health but there was also a women's bureau that is all about building safe supportive work environments for women but there's no men's bureau Mm -hmm. so i get another great example of structural advantages for women that don't exist for men which is totally antithetical to what we're continually told where society is built for the need for the needs of men and i think people confuse the fact that because society was built by men people seem to think that it was built for men 
And yes. if you look at the lack of things like the Men's Bureau or the Education, the Commission for Education of Women and Girls or the Office for Women uh, Women's Health, it, I don't see how that's built for men because it seems to be built for women. Uh, I mean, society's built for men and women in different ways. Um, I also I also want to bring up, I know we talked a lot about military deaths, but we can't we have that conversation about also acknowledging that the number of veterans who die by suicide oh, absolutely. greatly outnumbers out any any amount of military deaths like uh i think it's something like seven thousand american soldiers have been killed in uh all the in, in warfare since 2001 but thirty thousand have died from suicide mm-hmm. so three times more men veterans die by suicide than than had died in the actual war so the real war is at home when you come home and uh, and then also like not just suicide but homelessness drug addiction yes trauma like yes. these men these men are just they go out they risk their lives they lose their lives they lose their limbs and their livelihood and their mental health and their friends they come back and they're treated like it's literally like homeless people not as heroes and they're left to basically end their lives by suicide or mm-hmm. fall into addiction which is not not really any different and um i just think that that's the hidden side of uh of the pain that men pay to fight the wars that win us the very freedom that you and I are enjoying right now. And it's annoying how, it's not annoying, but we talk a lot about intergenerational trauma and epigenetics. I mean, the example that comes to mind is um, within black communities in America, how the intergenerational trauma of slavery across families Uh in America, black families. And I was like, that's very interesting. I'd love to know more about epigenetics and how, we are able to how our trauma can become part of our genetic makeup and how that's passed down intergenerationally mm-hmm. no one seems to be willing to talk about the intergenerational trauma of the tens of millions of men yes. who died in war in, in probably one of the worst ways possible like the dying in a war is one of the worst ways to go mm-hmm. and no one talks about what is the intergenerational trauma of the, the men of generations to come as a result of like my granddad being in the war, mm-hmm. uh, his dad is in the war, and like, what does that mean for men? Like, why do yeah. we not apply that same mindset to men? I mean, I, I, I like a, a couple of points to touch on there. In looking at you know uh, gene expression through stress and genetic epigenetics, as you're talking about, a a I think my father's stepfather, or both his stepfather and his direct father, uh, both served um, in in World War Two, and mm. I had to have a really hard conversation with I think it was my my mother or my uncle because um, I, I never really had the knowledge I have now to sit down and talk with my dad about it at the time, and he's a very mm. hard box kind of guy where you know it was like mm. grunt and cuss, go to work every day, um, you know the put it this way like uh, like hearing the word the, the word proud means a lot mm. to me because it meant it mm. was never really said unless it was significant at the time um you know i had to sort of get into their heads and get them to understand that you know we there, there was a big push in like a sorry big push there was a big response in the post-war lifestyle because of things like alcoholism drug abuse uh violence abuse and that sort of like mm. you know 1950s era america um and there was a lot there's a lot of negative connotation around it and rightfully so that i'm not justifying the actions what i'm, what I'm getting mm. at is that no one sat down because psychology was such a new realm by the early 1900s, mm. uh, even into the, the first sort of third of the 1900s, that psychology was so new, we didn't really have the understandings nowadays that we do on on clinical therapies and expressions and understanding uh, psychological trauma and distress that comes from being exposed to uh, such traumatic experiences. 
these men were coming mm-hmm. back to, well, firstly, uh, jobs that were either gone or economies that were completely changed, uh, expectations of them to just simply return to normal life. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the draft is mm-hmm. over, the conscriptions mm-hmm. are over. Like, let's be very clear that the draft was male drafted and mm-hmm. the conscription was male conscription. Uh, mm-hmm. Mostly of fighting age and their fighting health. So you're coming back at a 20-year-old man who served at, let's say, D-Day and you survived the march across Europe and you've gone back to America that you have seen some things that no home life experience can fix or correct. Mm. You can't, you can't make up for that. You can't uh, improve that. You can't correct it at the time that those, those treatments existed and those situations occurred. You simply just don't have the ability to, to recorrect what you just went through. There's only something that can be said. If you watch band of brothers, again, an example, there's a scene in which they, they find one of the death camps. You can't unteach that to someone. You can't unexperience that. And then go, well, now you've just got to be a functioning human again. You've just watched the worst of human history and human behavior, and you've experienced and interacted with it. Yeah. And the likelihood that is if you were part of the companies that were there, you were male because that's what it was. Yeah. You've now got to go home to life and you're seeing like thunder, lightning, or you're seeing flashes, you're seeing fourth of yeah. July fireworks, you're seeing, you know, someone who looks like a German potentially, you're seeing someone who looks mm. like one of the, the the European countries that you fought in, or you know, there's a a bang suddenly, like you can't un-experience those things and have those developed mm. traumas and experiences psychologically. It wires certain things in your brain. You have a heightened mm. amygdala. You have a heightened hippocampus. You're having a heightened responses neurologically and and uh, like psychologically to the situations that that cause these triggers or responses. That's what we're seeing in PTSD. But you're just expected to come home and act normally as if that's mm. some sort of like normality to experience and just return from and go, well, that's over now. Turn that switch there's going to be certain expressions and and uh, neurological adaptations that occur to deal with these problems, coping mechanisms, mm. strategies, psychological uh, uh, repressions, uh, emotional neglection. Mm. There's going to be a list, a list of these things that you just simply can't deny and say, well, you know, just get over it. Like, you know, these, these men were, yeah. these were bad men when they came back and they're abusive and violent. It's like, hang on. They literally just went through absolute violence. There is, there is yeah. no way to, like, you can't mutually exclude what happened in the depths of, of, of the Battle of the Bulge or, you know, the Bastogne, you, mm. you know, deep in these, these situations, even the Eastern Front, whatever it is you want to talk about, you can't deny these situations and then also say, hey, violent men, because they went over mm. there to help you violent. They went over there to stop violence and mm. protect and serve, and they came back destroyed. And mm. you, know, you can't mutually exclude those two things psychologically that, you know, the violence they may be the showing or displaying or the alcoholism, the drug addiction, mm they can't put into words what they saw. And so now the means for them to express that is through this behavior that they've, they've used to deal with it. You know, there's yeah. like smoking became heavily uh, dependent over there because it was a way to calm the nerves and ease off anxiety, mm. uh, alcohol when it was available and it was found like all these things that now they've brought back home. That's now behaviors. They've got to deal with the shit they just went through. And most of the average age of the D day landing was 21. So you got guys coming back from, Crazy. from, from D day at 20, 24 and the rest of their life, they have to live as if they're normal. You can't, you can't take that out of the equation of the conversation as to why they might be fucked up and what, you know, the things they then passed on, you know, like when I talk like to, to kind of get to that point, I was talking about when I talked about my father and when I talked to him about some of the things I talked to mom about it, um, you know, cause I don't think any of that's off books to, I, I'm always happy to talk about it is that he, the level of love and, re- and respect and emotion that he showed to me was tenfold what he got from his father yeah. because he came back from the war in these positions that were just absolutely messed up. So to him, 
he was showing emotion to me. I was like, this dude said, I'm proud of you like five times. And I can count each one of those and remember mm. each one of the T. Mm. Like to me, I was like, that pushed me to be better. I was like, well, how can I be better? Cause you know, when he says it, it means something it has got gravitas to it. That was him emoting. He was displaying pride and being proud mm. of what I did. He never got that from his dad. So to him, he's mm. like, this is tenfold different to you know what happened. So he's mm. emotionally improved and mentally improved. He thinks from what he went through. But, you know, if we go by the current expectations that men have to be perfect and emotional and, you know, we have to be completely uh, on point with our emotional regulation and these expectations, you go literally, that's two generations. That's literally two generations back between my father and his father that he potentially came back from his experience of the mm. war in a messed up position. There is no way you can't say the other seven, nine, 10 million people involved in what was it? No, 40, 40 million people involved in World War II. 99% of them were, were male. You can't say they all didn't have that same sort of expect experience coming home. There's going to be something yeah. said there that there's a consequence of this experience now affecting how they raise their families or they live in society. And then inversely from that, obviously the family they have after that. Yeah. I mean, war is definitely a, a big example of that, but I guess it's a, 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 as a wider practice, we can all, I think, I hope we can all agree that the vast majority of people are not born bad. I mean, I'm sure there's psychopaths and stuff like that, but most vast majority of people are not born bad, but there are bad people. So, yes. and some of those are men, uh, a lot of them are men, but we, we should ask ourselves, so what's happened between someone not being being not being not born bad and then displaying negative behaviours? Like, How do we fill in the gaps of that journey? What has that person experienced? It might be, it might be war, but it might be anything. It might be trauma, it might be abuse in childhood, it might be bullying. It might it could be any any anything, and until we start to fill in that journey uh, in a way that doesn't blame men for being men, then I don't think we'll see the progress we need. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean, war is certainly a, a thing that would be traumatic in a way that I just cannot even fathom. But it doesn't have to be war; it could be anything. Um, yeah, I remember seeing a really annoying podcast, listening to a really annoying podcast where a bunch of a couple of women were talking about. Uh, the fact that they wanted to have a, a memorial for the women that were lost in the war in America, which is fair enough, sure. But the memorial, people were like, you can, but it can't be taller than the, the men's one. And then on the podcast, they were whining about it. They were like, so fragile and this and that. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but that I'm totally on board. Like, no, no, yes. you do not get to have a bigger memorial than the men, considering yes. the dis huge disparity. And yeah. I'm not apologizing for that. No, you, you it has to be smaller like it, it has to be representative of the the, the sacrifice that yes. men and women made and i'm not saying make it tiny or don't have one at all i'm just saying but it, it just simply can't be bigger it's got to be scaled it has to be relative yeah we just and just the the problem the wider problem is that we just don't gender going back to gamma bias we don't gender the pain that men feel we don't gen and especially in like political issues like I'd, I'd say the biggest two political uh sort of world-changing events from the last few years are probably uh, George Floyd. Everyone talks about how uh, it's a, it is a, an issue faced by black Americans, which is absolutely true. But so too is it true that it's black men that are experiencing yes. police brutality. If you line up all the, pe all the black people killed in 2020 alongside George Floyd, literally 99% of them or more were black men. Yes. And it was a, an absolute tragedy that we never gendered it as a gender and racial issue that overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, affects black men. So we were so reluctant to gender it um, as a gendered issue and a racial issue. 
And the, I guess the other the other big uh, political event was Qatar, the World Cup. Everyone talked yeah. about all the all the all the migrant workers that were killed, but no one said they were all men, and they were yeah. all men. Six thousand men, migrant workers killed to build those stadiums. And I worked it out. I worked it out where if we had a minute silence for every male immigrant worker killed to build the stadiums, we would have gone for the first seventy consecutive games without having a single word said. And um, no one made that a male issue. Again, another thing in Qatar was obviously gay rights, very important. But no one ever talks about how male gay men are historically uh-huh. and still today they're singled out. Not gay women. Gay men are the ones that are persecuted. Uh, if you look at like the, the going back to the war and uh, gay people were killed by the Nazis, it wasn't gay people. It was specifically gay men. Yes, and it wasn't gay women. Lesbians were were not condoned by any means, but they weren't rounded up and killed uh-huh. in the tens of thousands. So, by erasing gender from these important social issues, we create the idea that men have had it great with all of history, and then some of them have, but not all of them. And uh, you see it the most in minority men, black men. And gay men and immigrant worker men. Uh, and this is a great example, I think. I um I just to kind of touch back yeah. right there on that point in uh in the, the reflection where people remove the the gender, I guess, around history, there's this weird uh, this weird assumption that we uh men have been the single benefit benefactory of uh the ease of history, if you will, and that we've been yeah. we created a way in which we've benefited the entire time. But Again, it's it's looking at like psychology, and I guess like you know this is this is stuff that some of the more of the stuff that I get to study that is beyond just my nutrition and training is that when we look at evolutionary psychology, evolutionary biology, up until only a certain recent period of time, it has been a a mutual dichotomy of benefit that mm. society has been built on that yeah. you know these these so-called roles that were created by us and these social constructs and these social existences and blah blah, blah subjective reality postmodernism, and all that jazz let's go be let's go part back before that the a hundred thousand years in which our species has existed and evolved and got to a certain mm. point in time where now we have this level of conscious thought up until only recently it has been very widely understood and accepted that there is a mutual benefit and almost the unsigned agreement that comes with the, the I guess, the abilities and the, the skills and the strengths and the weaknesses that both sides of this species have. Mm. And that is that, you know, when it comes to, uh, to let's say, nurturing, when it comes to, uh, you know, being in the house and making sure that the children are raised. And again, this is very traditional. I'm not saying it has to be this way now. Mm-hmm. But if we go back through that, yes, sure, there was a, an ex- expectation on the woman to be in those roles. And that's what you have to do. Yeah. But that doesn't immediately mean that all of a sudden men had it easy because like, hey, you're raising the child. Back then, that it, it grew inside of you. It still does now. You know, you need to be around yeah. to feed it because we didn't have the levels of industriousness we have now to provide services and foods and, and like, uh, you know, automatic things that we can have now to make what living is. easier, modern pleasures. So it was kind of like someone does need to keep an eye on this child, but also if one of us is going to go forage or hunt or, or raid or pillage in order to feed and have provisions, it's probably not going to be you as the female bearing the child. It should probably be me. So I'll go risk my life to find the food we need or the provisions or the resources or the necessary goods we have. I'll mm. risk my life in the war to earn my, you know, if you're a Roman citizen, if you're a Roman uh, auxiliary, auxiliary, 25 years you had to fight in the Roman army before you gained Roman citizenship to even have a house or to have wow. like a level of land. Now, 
that's 25 years as a soldier. You have to continually fight. And we know Roman history was a lot of fighting. So I'm going to go do that in order for us to have a life. Mm. So, mm. you know, whilst you're at home protected and eating, I'm going to go off and exchange that value that you have here. I'm going to go and exchange that over here to make sure we keep getting that. It's, it's, it's weirdly neglected. You know, when we look even around things like uh, uh, construction and building like these great monuments that we have and all these things through history, it's weirdly left out of the conversation that, you know, whilst, yes, there was, I guess, a, 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 I don't want to say a degree of control, there was a mutual expectation that the 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 female raised the children or stayed home and mm. you know, took care of the house or, you know, perhaps they were a slave maiden or something like that and mm. it was a bit more that way, that the the very people that were you know the the builders of these great amphitheaters and colosseums and pyramids and all these very unique constructs that took a lot of work and risks and deaths and people falling off things before you know we had scaffolding and, and workplace mm. health and safety they were blokes doing that like there were men that yeah. were doing those things like there, there wasn't this strange like 10,000 year period where it was just simply men sat under the fans and got fed grapes and got to like live this lavish lifestyle <laughs> They yeah. had to be the men in the armies and the men in the construction forces and the slave camps and the mercenary mm. huts that were doing these works that, you know, that, that, that required a degree of sacrifice. It, it wasn't just simply like, uh, uh, oh, well, I was born with a penis. I get to be the recipient of all this luxury. I yeah. got to go risk my part of the, of, of the equation, which is in order for the species to survive, I need to uh, achieve resources and I need to go do things and build things and construct things. You probably mm. should stay home and look after the child. So it's fed and safe and warm and, and nurtured because I have a lot more testosterone and you have a lot more estrogen. That's going to be mm. what you know, naturally happens. And yeah, it's, it's strange to me that we, we neglect that part of the conversation. So just a weird assumption that history is a, a, a male paradise when some of the most gruesome <laughs> points in life, yeah. You, know, yeah, you just go back through the way people were killed or fought in wars or, you know, sent to die or things like that. Like the, the way, you know, Sp like seven, seven years old, a Spartan soldier was taught to, uh, sorry, six years old, a Spartan was taught to start fighting. Like that, that male in Sparta does not get a choice to live any other lifestyle. They don't have, yeah. they don't have freedom. And there's no choice of men either. We talk and understand a bit. I mean, ultimately, for the vast majority of people, for the vast majority of human history, it's been shit. For both yes. both yes. male men and women, like it's been awful. Like it's uh, we always people always seem to descend into who had it worse. When the fact is, we all we all it's had it bad. bad. And and the dividing line between who had it good and who didn't have it good isn't gender but class. And yes. both women and men are on both sides of that divide. Like it's about the working class versus the upper class. That's who that's the haves and have nots. And um. We, you're right in the sense we don't, we all, again, we don't gender historical suffering. Like we look at like a, the slaves that build the railroads or the Great Wall of China uh, and like the human, like, like you should ask yourself like, what gender are the bodies that are bit buried beneath the Great Wall of China or who was blown up whilst building the Hoover Dam or mm -hmm. what, who, what, what corpses littered the railways and it, it's men, working class men and of course, women have had their own historical struggles too, where, you know, women were having seven children up until the 1800s, 50% of children would, be, would die before their fifth birthday. Yeah. So it'd be like a flip of a coin, whether your child survived to their fifth birthday. Women had to raise their children. They had to educate those children. Yeah. They had to cook and clean for those children. Seven kids. 
And she had no choice. She couldn't opt out of that, but neither could her husband who was stuck down a mine somewhere or going yeah. to work. Did he have a choice? No, I'm not going to go to the mine. Yes, you are going to go to the mine. And both both lives were awful. Um, and what, what liberated women from that lifestyle, as you said, a lot of it was um, domestic sort of uh, tools, white goods. That meant they didn't have to cook things from scratch yes. every single time. They had fridges and microwaves and ovens. So they got ovens and cooktops. And, and like no one wants to talk about how the, the greatest liberated women were those things, plus the, the pill, which gave yep. them reproductive control. Mm-hmm. And guess who created those? It was <laughs> probably capitalism, the old patriarchy. <laughs> like, yeah. like these are these are the products of capitalism that have liberated women. And uh, we need to have a similar liberation of men from their, their sort of gender roles now as we continue to liberate women from theirs, um, I suppose like, it put it into like a hypothetical situation. Like, I feel like if people went back 500 years or 200 years or 1,000 years and got to choose whether to live the life of a man or a woman, I genuinely think it'd be a difficult decision to make. I would be Absolutely. one you'd have to think about a lot. And I would I would it'd be crap probably for both sides. And I at no point want to try and wave away the difficulties that women have historically spent and the pain they've gone through, but neither do I want to wave away what men went through. And the fact is that we're all privileged now. The fact that we live in the tiny, tiny percentage of people oh. that get to have the, like, are we all privileged be just by being born today in developed countries? And uh, it's a shame that we don't acknowledge that. First yeah, I think like, just on what you've touched there, like, I, I it's something I've said a uh, hundred times like uh, in in the safety and security of of peace and privilege it's hard to look beyond the fact that you know times have had it worse than we have and mm. suddenly you know, when, when it's all over the news and all, all you see is the news that this is wrong and this is wrong and this is happening and death here death here there is if we look at it statistically there has never been a safer point in time to exist in human yeah. history other all than peaceful, right yeah. now and it's only getting better yes we see things yeah. that get worse on the news or this is happening in global war yeah. this catastrophe like but you got to realize you have such access to information now that it's not possible to not see it somewhere someone somehow is sharing it interacting with it engaging with it whatever so you know these these notions that it's an absolute struggle to exist now any like one of the times when i when i and this is a very extreme example when i deal with clients psychologically who discuss hunger or starvation one of the one of the examples I give them is the Battle of Leningrad, and I'm like, look, if you could choose between existing right now on choosing to have a diet and wanting to lose some weight, and us working to get you shredded to go to the bodybuilding stage or mm. the competition we have going on, or just getting lean, if you have the choice between choosing to be hungry right now on the food that we're sort of working through, mm. or the dietary intake of the Battle of Leningrad, mm. I can promise you right now that their experiencing is starvation. Yours is a choice of hunger. We've got to look back with perspective and go, okay, you know, and that, that's a very extreme example, but it's a way in which we can understand perspective and position because with the right perspective, we can look back in times and go, oh, fuck, actually, you know what? I've got it pretty good right now. Oh, mm. my, my perception now is I'm making this choice to be, you know, a very, you know, I guess relative example is when my clients choose to cut, go on, one of the things I say when we go on a bodybuilding stage it is a privilege to choose to diet. It is a privilege to be over-consuming calories, to build muscle, mm. to be in a circle mm. for food. It is a privilege. Yeah. At a point in time in history, being fat was a display of power because no one had food. So if you had food mm. and wealth resources, you were you were fed, you had money. Now, mm. like it is a choice that you wish to be hungry. A thousand years ago, 200, 500 years ago, it wasn't sometimes, most of the time, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't a, a privilege to be able to say, I want to be hungry for a period of time to get lean, or I want to over consume to build muscle mass. 
because history is so messed up. When we look at that perspective, we take that perception, we can look back in points in time. Like I said, you know, Leningrad, we can look at that and go, okay, you know what? They had 800 calories of a mixture of sawdust, bread dough, and feces, human fecal matter. Like that was how they they constructed some mm. of the food they used to survive the battle of Leningrad in World War II. Yeah. At a certain point, cannibalism broke out amongst the city. That is how bad it got in terms of available calories. Now, that is not a choice. They weren't choosing that. You know, they weren't, hey, I want to sit in this point in time and exist here and sort of like make that choice. It we now exist in a relatively safe environment where I can say for the next six months or the next three months, I'm going to restrict my calories and choose to be hungry so I can get healthier and leaner. I can make mm. that choice. I can safely make that choice. Yeah. And just that, you know, take that perspective. That's a very, you know, unique example, but take that premise and apply it to anything. I think like if you're taking anything away from this conversation is that use critical thinking and perspective to take that back and go, you know what? I've got it pretty good. I'm yeah. in a situation like it's relatively not that bad. I am not yeah. at odds with, you know, most things. If the biggest struggle I have is how long I'm hungry for or how long I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, in the gym for training my ass off, like, those are all luxuries yeah, yeah. we get to experience today that 200 years ago you would have been shot for. So, you know, yeah. just it, it's it's a degree of like, let's have perception, let's have compassion, let's have have empathy. And also like, you know, let's let's have that perspective shift that it's it's not that bad. Right now we're probably creating our own enemies just because we're so safe. We're so secure in what we have going on that we're creating the problem. That's Yeah, I mean, there's another book I've been reading called Factfulness by uh, Professor Hans Rosling. And he talks about that. He says, like, we don't notice this gradual improvement of the world. Uh, we live in a healthier, happier, freer, more educated world than ever before in human history. Mm-hmm. And that slow march of human progress is kind of boring because it happens so slowly. Whereas yes. we're bombarded by the news, by these horrific, highly visible, singular events. But we can't ignore the fact that we do live in a better world than ever. And we should all be grateful, uh, both men and women. Um, I know in terms of Leningrad, it reminded me of something I read recently. I think it was Richard Reeves said, probably the worst gender or time to be born in history was a Russian man. Yes. At the beginning of the 20th century. Yes. Because only one in, I think one in three of them died. One in three. Right before... men, one in three men at the age of 25 survived World War Two. Shit. Okay. Well, and, and the Russian men. I, the the, the experience, I, I didn't know the details that you shared, but they were, that's horrifying. So to be born in Russia as a man in the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century, awful. And as you said, like star- starving, but now we, we get to opt into doing fasts. Yes. We can choose not to eat. That is mm-hmm. such a privilege. Yeah. It's almost like, and the fact that more people die from obesity than from starvation is it's a sign of some sort of success where we are eating, we're living in a world where there's so much abundance of food not always. And that's an important thing that Hans Rosling says in his book. He's like, we can't neglect the world is also still bad, but it is getting better. It is possible for something to be bad yes. and getting better simultaneously. And it is. There are certainly some things in the world that are bad. And we shouldn't take our foot off the gas in terms of wanting to demand continual improvement. We should continue along this path and expect more. But we also need to acknowledge that it is getting better and not to live a life of just fear and pessimism and chaos and uh, I don't want to. I don't want to live in that life. Like uh, he compares it. He compares in his book to uh, like seven million, seventy million, or something like ninety nine point nine 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 percent of planes go on their journey and land safely, 
and no one writes about them in the news, but when the one plane crashes and blows up and that's everywhere. And we live our lives continually in the brace position, expecting things to blow up around us. Yeah. So we live in a world where we're only exposed to the very, very worst things that happen. And uh, someone else described it as unexploded bombs don't make the news. And I think there's a lot to learn about that and a lot of gratitude to be taken from that perspective. And um, absolutely, while simultaneously still asking for more. I think we should always be asking for more. Yeah, I think this is this is something that I that I preach even from a, from a coaching perspective. I I so one of the big things like I've studied in acceptance and commitment therapies. I've studied anxiety and depression commitment therapies. Um, I've mm. stu- I'm studying right now in clinical behavioral psychology. The the thing that I that I often prescribe to my clients, and it comes from um, uh, a big part of it comes from my own personal sort of philosophical beliefs. Um, but things like reading books like uh, uh, therapists like Viktor Frankl, so the man's search for meaning and the way he wrote about his time in the Auschwitz death camps and things like that. Mm. Uh, and the boy who went to Auschwitz, like learning, like reading from these sort of doctors and this mm. he's a he was a psychiatrist who went into um into uh, Auschwitz. You, you get to a certain point where, you know, you can you can accept that things are bad. You, sorry, you can accept that mm. things are the way they are, and still want to progress them. You can still want to get better. You can mm. still, you know, a big thing is that I'll push for a client is, you know, we not we may not, you know, things might be hard now, or you know, things are are the way they are. You, you've gone through some struggles or some problems. Like we can't deny that. But mm. don't fixate yeah. on that. Don't create your identity around that. Don't create your narrative and story on this problem or this thought or this previously associated mm. disorder or problem or you know exposure experience. Instead, we acknowledge that it exists. We notice that it's a problem. We notice these feelings, these emotions attached to it. We accept that it's real, that it's existed. But where I sort of, mm. I guess, differ from the common sort of talk therapy is that we're not going to sit here and, ha- and hang around. How do we progress past it? How do we improve mm. your life beyond what it is? Because if each person is day-to-day living a better life than we are by consensus all progressing forward and being better people and building a better society. Because if each person is working to do better and be better, then mm. logically the only conclusion is that we are all being better. Whether it's 1%, mm. 10%, 200%, whether it's, you know, you're down in the ditches and you're absolute POS of a human and you're simply trying to be less of a shit human, whether it's you're trying to change the way education is taught or change the way research is written or, you know, change the way we look at health and like psychology or the, the pinnacle of human performance. If everyone is seeking to do something better in their own life, they're, they're looking more of a local scale. Then we zoom that out globally. Everyone is doing better things, and therefore the yeah. only conclusion then is that society is better. It is the only. Yeah. But I look at the uh, and that to me is my reflection of stoicism in the sense of wisdom and virtue coming together. We are using the wisdom of recognizing that if I am better individually and I encourage others to do better or be better or just simply you know live by an example that we can I can come out of these problems and I not be absolutely identified with my trauma or exposure to these situations and mm. I, I can progress and be better from it, then surely other people can look to me and sort of think the same thing. And you know, it doesn't have to be the moral the virtuous attacks of anyone that doesn't view the way that the world I do, which is you know that very woke cultural sort of phenomenon mm. at the moment. Just simply look at the fact that you know something sucks something happened to you was shit it was there was a, a terrible yeah. thing that happened or it keeps happening great let's acknowledge that now from there do we stay here and identify with this forever because that's a pretty mm. shit existence mm. how do we get past that and keep getting better how do we progress despite the fact this happened yeah no a- amen um i mean the past can make you better or it can make you bitter and like it's up to us to choose which one of those paths we want to go down uh 
and you can you can be defined by your pain or you can use your pain as a way of becoming a better stronger person more resilient person and uh i guess we get into that the concept of recreational victimhood is a concept i love that <laughs> such a great <laughs> use of words and there's a lot of people that indulge in it to the point where they don't know anything else and um especially when you start tying in like different groups of people but i yeah i mean that's a great that's a great guess a concluding statement in terms of you decide what happens next like mm-hmm. we can't change the past and it's important that our past isn't forgotten and becomes a formative part of who we are but we can either tr- process that in a negative way or we can process it in a positive way and um by allowing each other to speak and share about those things that we we encourage those painful experiences to be positive i mean i i think the painful period painful experiences of my past i hope have become formative positive parts of who i am now and agreed agreed i just think i wish more people would do that rather than living in the past and Mm -hmm. perpetuating that and making it part of who they are through Mm -hmm. recreational victimhood um which is why it annoys me when people think i'm engaging in victim sort of uh like oppression olympics where I don't I consider myself extremely privileged. I consider myself extremely lucky. Uh and I I, I really don't want to become embroiled in this victimhood contest. At the same time, we do need to talk about what's happening. Absolutely. And we just shouldn't be defined by it, basically. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't, don't be defined entirely by what, what's happened to you. Um and, and use it as a place to be better, including who you talk to. Like mm-hmm. I talk to some awful people. Mm-hmm. I get to expose some really shit people. And I use them as an example of what not to be. Yep. And uh, I wish more people would do that. Mm-hmm. Challenge, like, again, it comes to the, I guess, the premise of, of critical thinking and being able to think for yourself is that if you, if you take any away from this podcast from me, is that I want, I want you to challenge yourself, your beliefs, your perspectives and opinions that is potentially wrong. Apply the scientific method, mm. potentially what you think may be wrong. Don't just create, and this is something uh, we wrote uh, in my ebook, uh, Creating Optimal Environment, is mm. looking to create echo chambers that reinforce what we already know. Because yeah. if we surround ourselves by people who only know what we know and only know what we do, yeah. what we think, you can't get better or be improved yeah. or learn or develop. Because no everything everything we know about knowledge, about uh, neurological development or, or uh, mm. um, neurogenesis, uh, neuroplasticity, everything we know about muscle development, everything is revolved around stress. Exposure to stress or a stimuli, stress being the sense of this sense, a stimuli. Mm. The more we expose ourselves to that stress, the greater the stimuli, the greater the load p- placed on the muscle, the neurological pathway. Mm. It has to adapt and get better to handle the progression of the load. So if you're only creating environments in which you exist that perpetuate what you already know or mm. enforce what you already know or back what you already say, you're not going to be any better. You're not going to do anything more with yourself. Yeah. You're not going to learn anything new, build a new muscle group, learn a new diet strategy. Mm. You're just not going to do it. So, you know, put yourself in positions where you're made to think or challenge, which is, you know, I'm, I can almost guarantee there'll be a percentage of people that come onto this episode and disagree or, you know, want to, what's this got to do with nutrition or training? No, it doesn't. It's got more to do yeah. with thinking critically, understanding health and understanding the diversity of health, understanding the psychology of health, there's, mm. a, there's a myriad or a tirade of issues that have come to the forefront when we look at health as a holistic perspective. It is not just, well, you know, this person has it easy, so they're healthy. You know, th- this whole conversation is showing you how important critical thinking and looking at empathy and compassion is so important. 
whether you're a coach working with people, whether you're someone who's never looked at men's health as an aspect before, who's never mm. looked at testosterone as being productive, has never looked at, you know, the the anchors that men may have in your life. Now you may have that thought process. Take that critical thinking and apply it. Well, I'd say, I mean, I'd say, I'd say, I'd say 90% of the stuff we talked about has been relevant to health in the sense that we're exploring the sort of political and structural causes of men's mental health, be that uh, war or homelessness or addiction or domestic violence. Like the, these are the causes of men's mental health. Yeah. If you dig into what's what these men have gone through, like domestic violence and mental health are intrinsically linked because oh, being a survivor of abuse has a massive impact on your mental health. I mean, and I guess to make that relevant to what you talked about in terms of n- not building spaces defined by victimhood, I'll end by just talking again by Erin Pitsy. Who, like I said, set up the first refuge in the world. So she pioneered refuges for women, and from the very beginning, she wanted men in a refuge too. Mm-hmm. Men, men, so because they were squats, as I mentioned, she would have men, workmen, come in to repair, build spaces, mm-hmm. do a DIY, and these were good, wholesome, positive men. And she, she believed that was essential to these women uh, becoming resocialized. And she was like, "How could any of these women?" change the way they see men if they've been marinated in male violence their entire lives how could we ever change that unless we can expose them to the good of men so she felt by bringing men into the refuge in a safe way of course and having them build the spaces and spend time with the women that was an essential part of re-socializing women but now men can't work in refuges at Mm -hmm. all there's no there isn't a single man working in any refuge not only just in a refuge but in any of the charities and I, I wonder whether by creating this inward-facing male-free space, as a, as understandable as that may be, I don't know whether how useful that is long-term in terms of re-socialising these mm-hmm. damaged, traumatised women to the goodness of men. And and you can extrapolate that same concept out to all of our lives where mm-hmm. we we always avoid the things that hurt us. Yes. And is that is that good? And if we are to overcome that, what kind of bravery... Uh, and encouragement does that require and can we give that to each other i guess that's a something to think about yeah i mean it's a, a pretty uh profound way to i guess finish a very lengthy conversation there's, there's <laughs> yeah there's not much more to, to add to that i mean like it is 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 safety and comfort how you want to spend the rest of your life if that only you know if that only embodies what you already know and what you already think and creates just an echo chamber of reinforced beliefs if change is required in any sense of progression and development across life which we know that it is Mm. you you have to open yourself up to tough conversations tough engagements Mm. tough thoughts critical thinking and Mm. you know that's really what you could probably take away from this is that where you know you're encouraged to do that because safety and security is not where you grow it's not where you develop or learn or improve or get better like you said, like no, no pain, no gain. To put it back into your, <laughs> to into your court. Gym and training. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Made irrelevant in the end. There it um, is. Done. <laughs> uh, to, to, to really to finish off, I guess, um, you know, where can people find you? What is the plan for Tin Man going forward? Oh. The, the immediacy, um, and what can we look forward in the coming future? Uh, I, I people keep asking me to get to YouTube and TikTok and whatever else, but I'm just on Instagram at the minute. Yep. Is, I'm just trying to like perfect that, so I'm yep. on Instagram. And only Instagram, and it's yep. at the Tin Men. One word, the Tin Men. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, give me a follow. Come have a chat. Feel free to disagree. If you think what I'm saying is stupid, then come to my page, and I will. I'll try to have a positive conversation in the community. Oftentimes, people do come and do disagree, and their comment doesn't get deleted; it gets pinned to the top. Mm-hmm. And 
I try to have a productive conversation, even if those that disagree with me, as long as it's done in good faith, mm-hmm. preferably about insults. Um, so yeah, I'm the Tin Men on Instagram. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you there. Well, mate, I appreciate your time very much. I know that it is a, a, a privilege to have you on and have the ability to converse with you in this manner. Um, well, likewise. Yeah, it is a, a, a privilege of mine to be able to speak to you. I know that there's a very limited number of people that you um, that you engage with, I guess, from a social sense, uh, I guess, outside of following Instagram. Um, so to have this opportunity, I guess, to to be able to talk with you is, is a privilege I do not... Uh, <laughs> undervalue if you will well thank you i'm always, I'm always un- uncomfortable around compliments but I'll, I'll try to accept those ones i mean you are og in the sense that you've been following me for since like i don't know years yeah, it's been a, years uh, now. it's been a, a uh, while i think that we've uh, i've been around tin man um even back before before we started i think we started our attempt at a men's health group um so that would have been three four years i think even probably yeah more. okay yeah, well, and I guess I use this opportunity to thank you as well, then Ben, and it's also been a privilege. And thank you for following from the very beginning, and it doesn't go doesn't go unnoticed. You'll um you'll, you'll no doubt see a few more stirring comments from me that oh yeah I'll, I'll notice too. on the matter page there's a comment. It's just because I've definitely seen something from. I'll always try and speak from a psychological perspective, especially if someone's coming aggressively or to challenge a point. Is that I'll try and evoke a a point of conversation or you know kind of use evidence and research to get to where they've come from. But mm. it'll never be you'll never see me attack someone directly or attack them personally. But you'll always see a, co- a comment from me that will either just completely destroy an idea or an ideology or propose yeah. a question in a way that makes them think that challenges their belief. Cause I just, I love seeing it when I can get someone to land on a point where they're challenged their belief and they're just, there's, there's nothing left to say. It's almost like the, the entire, uh, like the argument falls apart because just there's, they haven't actually thought that deep about the point they've created. Yeah. So I'll always try and evoke yeah. a conversation that way where someone's like made either stop and think or just go, actually, I haven't thought about this at all. The comment, the comments are the best part of my page. I think the the greatest compliment I've ever been paid on my page was someone someone said, "Holy shit!" Every comment on this page is an essay, <laughs> and it was just like they are like you go on other yeah. people's pages and it's just like clappy emoji, clappy emoji in the comments. And that's it. Yeah. We're like, yeah, you go. <laughs> but but on my, I'm I'm very proud of my page that it's there's this huge, like, just huge walls of text where people yes. are, are having frank discussions mm-hmm. and there's yes arguments, but. At least they're in depth and you're you're certainly one of them in the comments and I look forward (laughs) to more of them. Um, But that is it for me, Uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you again for your time, mate. I appreciate it sincerely and I look forward to the many more conversations that we no doubt have. Uh, Like you said, guys, Mm. if you have a desire to learn more, ask more, think differently, go find the Tin Man uh, on Instagram, Um, follow along and definitely give him some engagement. Uh, If you have any other questions to me around anything we've talked about, Please reach out. Don't hesitate. Challenge any of us. If you think it's wrong, give me a reason. Discuss it openly. Be willing to have the conversation and I will engage back with you. But that is all from us and uh, I will chat to you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.